You're listening to the sweet, serene sounds of my neighborhood. Uh, my, As I recorded today's episode, uh, my neighbor decided that it would be perfect to power wash his house. <laughs> so maybe my background removal software will have pulled this out and you guys won't hear it. Uh, but I'm going to pretend like it wasn't able to. Uh, you are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What's happening? Welcome to the show. Welcome to my show. We've been doing this show now for uh, just about four years. Um, and uh, I'm happy you're here. Welcome. Welcome to all the new listeners that have been following us. We just had some record-breaking numbers over the past couple weeks. Uh, you guys loved the Chris Candy episode that we did which is great and uh, we've got great response from last week's episode with Magic Sword the uh, Dark Wave the synth wave band responsible for the Thor Ragnarok trailer song wow I barely got that out um, so thank you welcome to the show and today's episode is a celebration of nerdom right today's episode we're going to dig into uh, a side of the industry that we don't talk about a lot on this show. A side of the industry that they don't really teach you when you go to film school. A side of the industry that you're really not prepared for when you're signing contracts as an actor. Talking about the press side of industry. We're talking about the promotions behind filmmaking. It's a big part of the engine out there. And uh, Spoiler alert, movies cost a lot of fucking money. It costs a lot of money to do a shitty movie, <laughs> let alone one of these gigantic cost the net worth of a small country to make superhero movies. Um, and so it's all about how you can, what angle you're choosing, how you can promote these films, how you can get a C, a generation of lethargic swipers to stop on your article and give a shit about a movie with a giant worm that comes out of the sand in it, right? It's a fascinating thing. It's a big portion of what we do. Um, and it's existed for quite some time. It's just at this very strange micro level with the way that algorithms seem to work these days, with the way that direct marketing works for audiences. How do you get folks to click on stuff? And there have been techniques used in the past, right? There's a reason why movie posters had the big actor's face on it. There's a reason why uh, trailers would uh, be cut with certain pop tracks, right? And there's a reason why currently every fucking thing that's promoted out there has to circle around some sort of controversial fucking um, social event or social message that gets put out there right now. It is all done for the same reason, to get you to be interested in this thing that requires a lot of us to go see it for them to break even. So it's fascinating to me. It's a big portion of what I think about when I prep a film. How is this thing potentially going to be marketed? What kind of stuff do I shoot to make this thing marketable? I think I've talked about it before, but I, I remember reading this bit from Robert Rodriguez where he was incredibly smart about how he shoots his second act. He's sure, he makes sure to put things in his movie in the second act that are trailer bait worthy. So that way you're not putting the most 
uh, story plot giving away stuff in the trailer. Because most movies, they want to show the most epic things in the trailer, right? Trailer meat is what they call it. You want to see some of the action sequences. You want to see some of the scale, some of the scope. Why is this worth, you know, $15 or $7 to go see it in the theater, right? Depending on whether you're seeing it on IMAX or not. And oftentimes, the, the marketing department will mine from the third act, which so many of us complain about, where you're like, I already know the fucking movie. Uh, because these marketing folks, these studios, these people that have put their cash on the line are nervous. And they know how fickle we are as a populace and how short our, our attention spans are. So a lot of the time when I see a trailer, if I see pr promotional material that is essentially telling me the entire story from the movie, I read that as these guys are nervous. <laughs> is this movie any good? Because these guys are very nervous about it, nervous about how to market it. Because terrible marketing, a lack of interest on our part as an audience will destroy a movie. I still cannot get over the fact that the recent Blade Runner remake, or not even the sequel for Blade Runner, uh, did so terribly in the box office. It blows my fucking mind. It's an interesting thing. It's a weird world uh, promoting and marketing films. And I think it's important that we touch upon it. And I wanted to sort of have someone on the show that is deep in it, that is in the world of writing uh, journalism for, for film, and is in the world of of writing blogs that uh, people are reading and works for a publication that is still in print, a publication that still gets fucking printed. And I'm talking about Empire Magazine. Uh, and today's guest is the editor-in-chief for the digital content, uh, Mr. James Dyer. He is a journalist at Empire Magazine and a podcast host at Pilot TV Podcast. Um, definitely go check that stuff out. Uh, he's written some phenomenal articles on Die Hard, on why Die Hard's such an amazing film. He has a new article out on uh, like all the nerd shit that you need to have in your brain before you go see Dune. Um, and uh, him and I have been trying to make this podcast episode work for a few months now. Schedules have been conflicting. Uh, he's been incredibly patient. Uh, and I'm excited. I'm excited that we were able to lock it down. So before we get into that, I want to thank everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and following the podcast on Instagram at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process P-O-D on Instagram. Ooh, here comes the power washer again. Um, if you've seen my posts the past week, you have noticed that finally my project with Christina P and Krayshawn came out. The mom song video, the comedy piece that we did together, released on the YMH podcast last week, and they just officially put it up on the YMH YouTube channel. Um, I have been posting on my Instagram all sorts of behind the scenes stuff, everything that's been going on. I just did, <laughs> I did a fancy photo shoot with uh, Gina wearing the tiger jumpsuit that I wore while directing Christina on the set of that video. Uh, I love this jumpsuit. <laughs> I've been loving your comments on the post that we've done about it. Uh, some people are like, this is the suit that I need to wear every time I'm directing. <laughs> and yes, uh, Black Magic is a sponsor of the show. 
uh, Blackmagic did uh, send me that camera. So we did promo shoots for Blackmagic, which I'm sending to them. If you guys are listening, they're on the way. Feel free to use them <laughs> in marketing campaigns. I think that would be hysterical. <laughs> um, but yeah, man. So uh, yeah, I've been posting all that stuff on there. You guys really loved and enjoyed all of my concert footage and stuff that I posted from uh, Magic Sword. Such a great episode. I have been talking to the Keeper of the Sword since. We've been going back and forth talking about movies, geeking out on films. Um, I'm so happy that so many of you have listened to them since that episode. I still need to put together, I'm going to do it for the end of the year, but I'm going to put together a new Synthwave um, playlist for Spotify with all this stuff on there. I should do Magic Sword playlist. I'll put that up there as well. Um, so yeah, fuck yeah, hell yeah. Let's see, what else did I want to talk about? Okay, I'm slightly allowed to talk about this. I have to be very careful about what I talk about. Um, but uh, one of the cool things out here is that there are test screenings. And there are certain websites that you can go to to uh, sign up to be a test screening audience. And I'd love to share that with you on here, but I don't want all of you <laughs> taking up the seats for it. So you'll have to find it on your own. I ended up finding it through a friend of mine. Lance actually showed it to me. Um, so I'm part of this group of folks that can go test screen movies. Now, the cool thing about that is that I get to see films a good year, six months prior to their release. And you're like, wow, they have movies completely finished a year or six months before they put out? Well, no, this is the other fun thing as a filmmaker is that I get to go see these movies in their rough assembly, oftentimes with no effects in. So you're actually seeing the set without the effects, which is fascinating. Like, how do you show this happen? Well, there's a bunch of lights in the background and I can actually see the setups, which I get really fucking nerdy about. And I also enjoy seeing early cuts of films because it makes me feel better about my work because I can see them as directors and as filmmakers at that level struggling with the same things that I struggle with on my level, which I find fucking really interesting. Now, I've seen two or three so far in the past few months. I saw one over a month ago. I'm not allowed to tell you anything about it. I'm not allowed to say what it was, I'm not allowed to do any of that. Just know that it's with a director that we all love, right? So someone that has done amazing films uh, and what else can I say about this? It's so dangerous because we sign NDAs, we're not allowed to talk about it. Um, let me just say this. Can I say this? Yeah, I think I can. It was the coolest fucking Viking movie I've ever seen in my life. Let me just say that. I think that's what I can say. It was the coolest fucking Viking movie that I've ever seen in my life. I cannot wait for you guys to see this film. And I saw this film with like no effects. That There's a whole end sequence that requires like massive effects. I was completely engrossed. There's a piece of me that is upset that I'll never be able to see that version of this movie again because it was so wonderful. And if you've ever been to a test screening before, what they do, what they used to do is hand out 
uh, pamphlets and you'd fill out surveys. But what they now do is uh, they, under the, your seats, they hide like little phones and plastic baggies because of COVID protocol, all this kind of stuff. And so you watch a film and then after you watch a film, they ask you a series of questions, right? And you can see through their series of questions where the studio has problems. Like you can sort of deduce. What do you think about the actor in this scene? What's your favorite? What you, was the third act too long or too short? Uh, did the did this relationship pay off for you? And they ask you all these different questions. Um, it's a fascinating fucking thing to be a, a part of because it's kind of like going to film school to a certain extent because you can watch how these pieces come together. And then I can't wait to go see the final piece uh, because then I'll be able to see what they learned and what they changed and how that changes everything. And, and oftentimes, if you're watching a scene, like we've talked about on the show, if you're watching a scene and you're like, this scene doesn't work, it isn't necessarily about cutting that scene. Sometimes it's about cutting three or four or five scenes before that that changes everything. So really interesting. So coming out soon, there is an amazing fucking Viking movie that is going to blow your faces off. That's it, man. You know the deal. Grab those noise-canceling headphones, sit back, relax, and prepare yourself for the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Hey, James, thanks for being on the show, man. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing good. We were just talking off air about the time differences between the two of us. <laughs> that is true. That is true. You were saying that it's sort of fall over there. I think our fall or autumn, because I am English, mm -hmm. uh, our autumn is perhaps a little harsher than yours. I don't imagine that the LA fall is particularly brutal in terms of temperatures. I could be wrong, but I'm, you know, I'm throwing that out there. All right. I'm going to defend myself. I recently <laughs> moved to Los Angeles from the East Coast, so I am not <laughs> going to compare our weather. Fair enough. Yeah, but, <laughs> but totally. Um, look, thanks for being on the show. I have, this has been an episode that we've been trying to make work for a few, like a few months now. Um, so I'm pumped to have you on. Um, and what I wanted to do is sort of talk to you about your career uh, as a journalist from for the movie industry and talking about, um, you know, writing uh, articles about film and how you got into all that sort of stuff. And, and just sort of catch you up on the, our show. We are usually about filmmaking in general, and we really mm. go deep into like how we had to survive as a filmmaker and um, you know, how to stay inspired, but there's a whole other angle to movie making that a lot of people don't consider. And that is the press and the promotional tour and all that stuff. And the thing that's fascinating when I talk to filmmakers on this show 
Uh, some of them love doing press and a lot of them really fear it. <laughs> people love doing press? Who are these people and where can I find them? <laughs> and so I figured it would be really cool to sit down and chat with you because you essentially are thrust into this world with these folks that are yeah. oftentimes begrudgingly on these long press tours. So, um, and the articles and stuff that you, you write are fascinating to me. Um, so thanks for being here to, to sort of break it all down. You're very welcome. It's nice having people asking me questions instead of the other way around. That's a, that's a nice change. I like that. I love being guests on other people's show for that same reason. It's like, I don't have to drive this ship? Cool. <laughs> I've done no prep at all, but it doesn't matter. Great. Um, well, let's start at the beginning. So uh, what uh, what came first for you? Was it a television show or, or was it a movie? Ooh. It was a movie. Um it was Star Wars, because of course it was Star Wars. It's always Star Wars, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah, it was very much Star Wars for me. So, um, But in a slightly different way. So I was on set of The Empire Strikes Back when I was like five years old. What? Um, yeah. So my um, my aunt, she wasn't actually an aunt. She was a friend of my mom's, but I called her my aunt, my auntie Sheila. She uh, she worked on Empire Strikes Back. She was an accountant. She didn't do anything particularly exciting. Uh, <laughs> but she was an accountant on Empire Strikes Back, and... Security on sets, as you can imagine, back then in 1980 were not quite what they are now. They didn't have to worry about the internet, they didn't have to worry about drones. No one even knew they were filming. Right. So we rock up at the she says to my mom, you know, do you wanna do you wanna, you know, bring James down? Do you wanna come see this? It's got spaceships in it, it'd be great. So she takes me down there and uh and and I get to go on set at the Empire Strikes Back. Now my memory of this is obviously very fuzzy. I was five years old. Sure. Um but I remember this, and my mother has repeated this story, that I was really nervous, like, the whole time. And she was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? You're supposed to be having fun. I was like, but are the spaceships going to take off with me in them? And I was, like, really worried I'm going to end up in space. And it was going to be, because so great was the set. And like, the reason I know this is because my mum did take some little Polaroids, and I've still got them. And it's me with R2-D2. He is literally about six inches taller than me. It's quite hilarious. Uh, there's me in the cockpit of the Falcon. Wow. And there's me outside the Falcon, because it was the Hoth set. That was the set. So it was the beginning of the film. Wow. Uh, and I got to see all this stuff and kind of be a part of that. And then after that, she sort of, she gave me this tape of the original Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Because obviously they'd got it. I think, I can't remember what the tape, I mean, the tape had come from. It was like on an old VHS tape. It wasn't a pirate thing because it literally came from the studio. So <laughs> that's allowed. But the problem was, it's like, like Star Wars is like, what, two hours and six minutes, something like that. It's just over two hours. Mm -hmm. And my tape of Star Wars was on an old two-hour VHS tape wow. and it was the only VHS tape I owned and my mum used to take me with her to work sometimes you know because we didn't have video games and stuff to do back then and uh, she'd stick me in like one of the rooms in her office like the recording studio that she worked in as well and she'd say right here you go here's, uh, here's, here's the film the only film I owned she put it on and I would watch Star Wars and I'd watch it almost every day wow. so it became like a babysitter to me so I know every single line of that film I'm obsessed with it but, but the thing was it's a two-hour tape remember the film is longer than two hours. So the second time the X-Wings go into the Death Star Trench, the second time, the thing just cut out. Like, it just cut. That was it. That was the end of the film. Because kids are inherently stupid, you know, bless them. I didn't question it. I didn't think of anything. I was like, oh, sure, that's the end of the film. They just go back in. And I even remember the sound effect. It goes, it goes, doom, 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 of the lasers. And then the film just stopped. And it wasn't until, and I kid you not, like maybe five, six years later, I was like, they blew up the Death Star? You're kidding! There's a ceremony, they get medals, this is unbelievable. And I had never, I had no idea there was a final five minutes to that film. So, I love you know. that. I love it, man. I, it's funny, I have a very similar 
story with my well not similar i wasn't on the set of any of the stuff but i was obsessed as a kid with um godzilla movies and when i was yeah. younger that was kind of my All the old creature features yes yes we used to have the creeper creature feature double feature out on the east coast out here and i'd watch that and my dad and i would sit and watch all these old films and i remember watching the original godzilla with raymond burr and uh i had no idea that there was <laughs> <laughs> there was a version that wasn't as like you know uh recut or you know it, not full of a of a white reporter running around talking yeah. about a giant lizard uh <laughs> and i got i got a little bit older and i was like whoa what is this this is amazing and as a you know as a young teen um there was a whole series of godzilla movies that weren't released in the u.s and i remember going into the comic book store and seeing all these action figures for uh, these like different Godzilla characters. And I'm like, what is this? And I'm talking to the guy behind the counter. He's like, oh yeah, these, ha these haven't even been released in the US. I haven't even seen them. Uh, and so in the, I think it was in like the late 90s, early 2000s when they started to come over here on VHS, it was a whole new world for me. It's that kind of that moment that you had when they blow up the Death Star. I'm yeah. Like, oh my God. It's the revelation, isn't it? Yeah. See, my, my aunt also got me on the set of, of Ridley Scott's Alien as well. Oh my Though God. That I wasn't allowed to watch for many years later, as you can imagine. Jesus, I didn't know this was going to be a bragging episode. Yeah. Well, well, all the sets I went on when I was too young to remember it. That's what this is going to be about. No, it was just those two. Those were the only two she got me on, to the best of my knowledge. Oh my God, dude. Um, yeah. Oh my, wow. Talk about being on the alien set. Like I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show yet, but I have talked about the fact that I have a film that's being developed by Ridley Scott's company, um, yeah. and I was incredibly fortunate one day uh, to go into his office. We were supposed to have a, we were supposed to have a meeting in the boardroom, and uh, I think I could talk about this on air. We were supposed to have a meeting in the boardroom, and it was right around that time where Ridley did uh, what was the name of the film where he had to take. Um, Kevin Spacey out of it. It was um, oh, got all the money in the world. Yes, and I was there supposed to have a meeting with investors, and all of a sudden the offices became crazy because of the you know Kevin Spacey being canceled, and like Ridley and his entire staff came in and they had to replan how to like they reshot that stuff super quick, um, and so they ended up moving our meeting, and uh, the producer that I was working with was like, "We're gonna do this in Ridley's office," and I was like, "What?" Because <laughs> yeah, and so we go into uh, Ridley's office, and uh, it's just loaded. Like the walls are loaded with alien concept art. There's like alien figurines all over the place, and he walks me in there, and I'm looking around, going, "Oh my god!" And uh, he says to me, "He goes, can I get you a coffee?" And I don't, I don't drink coffee. It turns my stomach, and I go, "Yeah." And he goes, "What kind of coffee do you want?" I go, "Whatever one takes the longest for you to come back." <laughs> Let me geek out on all this stuff. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but just to, even if you, do you remember being on the first Alien set or is it Absolutely just a, nothing. Okay. That yeah. one I remember absolutely nothing yeah. about. Nothing Fuck. at all. That and we don't have any pictures either. So, uh, <laughs> I only have my mum's word for it. But she assures me I was there. So, I'm taking it. Oh, my God. That one must have been amazing. Well, Aliens, like Aliens, Cameron's Aliens is literally my favorite film of all time. Oh, yeah. It's so, a great movie. I love that movie yeah, too. Yeah, so, because that's the first film I got obsessed with and the reason I did was because I had been on set of Alien my mom was like oh you like she wouldn't let me watch Alien but when Aliens came out she kind of let me watch Aliens when uh, I was clearly far too young to watch it <laughs> uh, because she was like oh this is a sequel to that film you're on set of. you should totally watch this <laughs> I was like, but instead of being traumatized as I probably should have been I just watched it I was I just blew my 
absolute mind. I'd like, I've never seen anything like this before in my life because obviously you go from Mickey Mouse Club to Aliens. That's a pretty big fucking leap. Um, I was like, this is unbelievable. And but I mean, look, Aliens is an incredible film on every single level. So you know, it's not, sure. not just that I didn't know any better, but it stayed with me. And I've, I've seen that film so many hundreds of times as well. It's such an it's such an amazing film when you think about it. And reading the stories of the uh, the stuff that uh, James Cameron had to go through to make that movie are oh, pretty God, intense yeah. and and put other people through. Let's let's not not mess about. Yeah, that's very true. It's very I mean, true. the man kicked over the tea trolley at one point. That's you know it's uncalled for. Certainly in England, you can't do that kind of thing. I know that's why some crew revolted. Right? They're just yeah, like that's right. Well, because he was unused to kind of British union rules and they were like no it's our mandated tea break we're having a cuppa and he was just like oh my god i'm trying to make a movie and he just lost his mind um i think he's chilled out a lot since then he seems a lot calmer these days but yeah. he, he certainly had his moments it must be years of flying a black hawk helicopter <laughs> um <clears throat> all right so then you uh way too early got uh, exposed to uh, very scary uh yeah rated r content um when did uh when did you decide so did you go to school for journalism because you knew you wanted to work somehow in this film thing or was it was it different for you like how it was a long roundabout route to be honest so i i read theology at uh, university for reasons that are not entirely clear to me um <laughs> and i i left i left university with uh frankly a theology degree and a I would say robust collection of Nintendo 64 games, and that was basically what I brought to the to the employment market. That was that was all I had to offer, which is not a lot. Um, I didn't really know what to do, but it was kind of it was back then. It was the late 90s. It was when the internet was kind of this new and exciting burgeoning thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, I remember I, I bought a modem, a little dial-up 56k thing, mm -hmm. uh, and I taught myself HTML because I thought, oh, this internet, there's probably something in that. Um, and I learned how to kind of do web design stuff. And I applied for a job as a, as a junior kind of developer slash web designer, sort of code monkey type of person. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did that and I worked on it for, I think, better part of a year, not quite a year I did that. And I kind of, I'd been a little bit bored for months. And I knew it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And I kind of decided I, I really wanted to write. Uh, and so I applied for a postgraduate course at the London College of Printing, which is a very well regarded uh, place in London but also more importantly it was the course was only three months long it was short it was also cheap mm -hmm. it was affordable yeah and, and it was taken serious it was a magazine journalism course uh, and I remember I went in for the interview there and they were like um you know like what you know what do you hope this course will lead you to? if you get in if we give you a place in this course where do you think it'll go I said I'd really like to write for Empire magazine <laughs> they were like sure I'm sure you do but I think we all understand you're going to end up working for Watt Canary or British Waterways or the Journal of Wound Care or something because that's obviously what happens because journalism is a very competitive industry and, and, and entertainment journalism is impossible to get into and I was like no no I ended up writing for Empire and obviously that's a stupid thing to say and I had no idea what I was talking about like sure. absolutely none because and even now when people say how do you get a job at Empire I'm like I do not know I really don't because it's almost impossible but with me it was just absolute blind luck yeah. and the fact that I had a really weird skill set so back then because it was 2000 so I finished my I finished my journalism course mm -hmm. and as part of that you have to get work experience and you have to get a placement. So I called up Empire and I was like, uh, hey guys, you know, can, can I get work experience here? And they were like, ha! no, absolutely not. There's like a six month waiting list and even then, no. So I was like, shit, no, I have to get work experience at Empire. And, and I said, look, is there any chance? She said, look, no. And also I can't talk to you because literally I'm leaving this my last day today. There's a new editorial assistant starting next week. So I'm not going to be around. And I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> 
So on Monday, I call up the new editorial assistant. I'm like, hi, my name is James. I'm supposed to be in working experience next week. Where do I go? What do I do? Who do I need to talk to? And they were like, we have no record of you whatsoever. Uh, but I'm sure we'll figure it out. Just come Ooh, down and smart. we'll make it up. And I was like, excellent. Um, so in the same way that sort of Spielberg lied his way into Paramount, I used that as my inspiration. I kind of lied my way into Empire. Um, but it was just a work experience. So I didn't feel too bad about it. But the thing was, while I was there, I asked them if I could spend like, just a day with their website. Because, you know, that was my background internet stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure they even remembered they had a website. Like they, they did look at me like I was speaking Greek to them. And it was in a different building in a different part of London. But I went down and I spent a day there just kind of talking to them, finding out how they worked and stuff. And then by absolute freak chance, about a month later, the website advertised for like a a deputy editor, which I wasn't Mm. really qualified for. But because I'd spent the day there and seen how they worked, I kind of knew what they wanted. And when they asked, I kind of knew how to write the application. So I wrote an application and I shit you not, I spent a whole paragraph about midichlorians was in my in my statement. <laughs> because they said there was a line in the job ad, it said, you know, the successful applicant will not only know blah, 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 they will know, you know, the difference between midichlorians and whatever it was. So I gave them a little paragraph of midichlorians. Uh-huh. And uh, for one reason or another, that got me a job interview. And somehow I blagged my way into a job there. And I never left. Wow. And that was it. Smart, man. It's <laughs> It's actually a really good story. I mean... It's it's hard to you know recommend as as a, a sort of you know foolproof way of getting into a job. I'm not sure lying is, is generally generally a skill they look for, but you know it worked for me. Right now, there's thousands of listeners just writing down on a on a, pa- on a pad right now. Okay, so lie, <laughs> lie, cheat, and steal, and the world will be yours. Don't yeah. like it. Yeah, Bad. yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Uh, wild man. All right. So then you get in there and you're working for the website specifically. What are you doing? You do yeah. HTML. Well, stuff? like, so I, I came in as kind of deputy editor. It was a small team. There were four people on the website. There was a, a freelancer. There was a designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the editor and there was me. And we were based out in Farringdon, which is sort of slightly more central east, uh, you know, of, of, of the West End. So it's a little bit further away. Like whereas Empire Magazine was based in the thick of it in Oxford Circus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for about a year. The dot-com, the dot-com bubble burst in the midst of my first year. So that was a little bit hair-raising. <laughs> yeah. Very nearly got made redundant. That was scary. My, my journalism career nearly cut short. Yeah. Um, but we got absorbed into the print magazine, I think, a couple of years after I started. Uh, so we were no longer this weird sort of satellite operation. And we became part of the core Empire team. Uh, and has been such ever since. Huh. So that was, uh, that was nice. So I got folded into to the brand as a whole. That's pretty awesome. <clears throat> and what was what was what were you originally doing? Were you writing articles or, or coming up with articles specific for the online content? Or, I mean, news. Like I reported a lot on news. The main stuff I did actually back then was kind of a combination of two things. So I used to do all the red carpets. I did all the premieres. Okay. All the premieres I had in London. I did London Film Festival. I'd go down every day. I'd go to all the galas. And the main reason was because because you know back then being a, a website didn't really get you a lot of access or really any. So. It would give me access to people I wouldn't normally be able to speak to. So like proper people. I got like five minutes with Tom Cruise (laughs) at the premiere of, God, what was it? Vanilla Sky, I think. And like getting Tom Cruise, like especially then was, I mean, even now it's it's a huge get like to get hold of him. Yeah, Yeah. And as a website, it was unheard of. But because I did all the premieres and because very few outlets covered those premieres in London. Uh, I used to get quite a lot of time with people. So I got a lot of access and I would get news stories out of them and write them up. Uh, And also we would do a lot of, uh, shall we say, on-set photography, where if a film was shooting in and around London or the UK, I would go out with my little camera, with my little telephoto lens and try and get set pictures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So like when Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone were shooting, like we found out that Hagrid's hut was in, I think it was in Hertfordshire, I can't remember, it was in this forest somewhere. So I would go in my coat with my camera and stuff, try and get pictures of the hut. Uh, <laughs> this did not go down well with studios at all, as I'm sure you can imagine. I mean, it didn't last long. We actually stopped doing it, I think, because the magazine started getting complaints because studios started to go berserk. Because I did, um, I was like, Pearl Harbor was shooting at a huge country estate in Sussex. Uh-huh. And I went down there and I pretended to be a runner. <laughs> and was started, I was literally handing out things like cups of coffee to, to Michael Bay. Do you know what I mean? Like, and just like, because no one, if you're handing out hot drinks, no one questions why you're there at all. <laughs> and, and, but I was also taking pictures of like, you know, it's Ben Affleck. And, you know, it's like, I was, I was doing that. And I did it with a number of films. Wow. Um, uh, I, was, I, I went to the Oxford set when Harry Potter was shooting. The unit publicist went berserk over that. Um, and I was taking pictures of the set there. And uh, I did a couple of sort of things like that. And eventually the magazine was like, no, no, this has to stop because we have relationships with the studios and you're just trampling all over them. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, my, my, my career as a sort of burgeoning paparazzi was, was yeah, that's not. <laughs> and for the best. It was for the best. Yeah, right. <laughs> so then, um, okay, so then you fast forward a bit to, uh, to where you are now and like what is – what is it like to be an editor in chief over there now? Like, what 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 is it that you do all the time? Well, so I mean, the job titles, I guess, a lot of the time are, are sort of what you make of them. Like, yeah, they're not a great descriptor of what you do. So I'm I'm the editor in chief of digital, so like, I kind of all the digital stuff falls under my uh, my purview. Uh, obviously, I write features and stuff for the magazine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the things that I love most now is actually podcasting. Um, yeah. So we have the Empire Film Podcast that I do. Yep. Uh, we have our spoiler special podcast, which is actually behind a paywall, uh, which which helps pay off the company so that they don't give us grief for spending so much time doing the other podcast. So it's kind <laughs> of a left hand pays the right hand thing. And then I've got the Pilot TV podcast, uh, which came about because we launched Pilot TV magazine in 2018, right. which was kind of like Empire for TV. Uh, it's no longer available on newsstands because uh, starting a new print magazine. Uh, is quite difficult in this day and age, and the pandemic did for it ultimately. Um, but it exists still in podcast form, and uh, and I love it. I love every second of it. I think it's a great medium. I think, and you'll know this. Like the relationship you have with with readers is great when you write, and it is great. And we do have a relationship with them, but there's something. There's a disconnect. There's a there's a buffer. Like you, you, you know, you you write something. You know, they read it. They may or may not read the byline. They may or not need to know that it's a person. In fact, some magazines don't even have bylines. Something something with the video games. Right, right, right. Um, But when you do a podcast and you're in someone's ears, there's something very personal, very intimate about it. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the people who contacted us during the pandemic and were like, you know, guys, you know, you you helped us get through this really difficult time. Like having you, you know, our friends, like in our ears every week just meant so much to us. And it's Mm -hmm. just like, I never got that from people reading my writing. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I've, I've, I've absolutely, I mean, you must have the same thing. Like the relationship you have with your listeners is incredible. Yeah, yeah. The relationship with the listeners is really great. And then the podcast for me, as a director, it's it's difficult. Our world, I always say this, like I, I call myself a director. <laughs> that is what would be on a business card if I was handing out a business card. Sure. But I'm doing that job maybe, I don't know, 5 10% of my life. And the rest of the time is prep and writing and, and pitching and everything else. And so the podcast has been something that has kept me sane, really, in the interim. Because mm. I get to talk to peers, I get to talk to crew folks that I really want to work with and love. Um, and then I just get to find inspiration, not only from the guests, but from the listeners of the show. 
And I find that talking about film just keeps it fresh. It always mm. keeps it fresh in my head and always, like if I'm, if I'm stumped and I can't figure out a sequence or I can't figure out a scene, I just either go talk to friends or I'll, I'll do a podcast episode and walk, walk out of the back of it going like, ah, fuck, I didn't even think of this and this and this and this and this. And this. <laughs> so it's, it's a really great tool, ultimately. Yeah creative tool for me so it's kind of why i do it it's selfish <laughs> and, and presumably during the pandemic because i found this and i'm sure you did too it's, like, it's a way of being able to kind of reach out to people because our, our office yes like i think most people's offices i mean i guess doing what you do you don't work in an office so much but like our office shut down in in march of 2020 and we all vanished and like you know some of the guys that i work with like my best friends but we live in very different parts of the country and this enabled us to sort of once, twice, three times a week, often more, because we started to do all these spoiler specials for the Marvel TV series, so mainly just so we could spend more time <laughs> with each other on air. And we just record these podcasts so we could spend time together and we could do what we love to do the most, which is, you know, talk shit about film and TV. Um, <laughs> totally. And man. people enjoy listening to it. So it's like a win-win. time to take a break and uh, talk about our affiliates, talk about our sponsors, talk about the ways that you can help this show stay on the air. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but nothing is fucking free. Even though I don't charge you to listen to the show, it still costs me something. Like I just literally got an email the other day saying your web services uh, need to be, uh, uh, subscription needs to be paid again. So I'm going to be paying like 200 and $400 for fucking to keep the websites going. Uh, so instead of me going, Hey, can you reach in your pocket and pay me for the show? Which I wouldn't do not yet. At least I am considering, by the way, for those listeners, those new listeners that are coming, um, as we progress to the end of this year, older episodes of the show may be behind a paywall. So if you want to pay for older episodes, you might have to do so. Um, but not yet. So you still have time. So if you haven't done so yet, if you like this show, head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com and definitely start digging through those older episodes before you put them behind a paywall. And even if I do that, it's not going to be that much for the show. It's going to help me pay for this stuff. Um, but I've always said since the beginning, um, I don't charge you for this intentionally. I wouldn't charge you if you came to my house for a meal. Uh, so I'm not going to charge you for a conversation. So the show... Uh, in the foreseeable future, uh, when I'm producing it, will always be free when it first comes out. So in order to make that possible, in order for us to do that, we need to have sponsors and we need to have affiliates. Now, before I get into this stuff, stick around because I'll make it fun. Um, but also uh, click below on any of the links. Click on the links. Like if you're looking to purchase something, if you're looking into something that you find interesting, or even if you just like want to support the show, click on the links. Visit these people on their Insta on their Instagram accounts. And if you leave messages for them, say, hey, I heard you want to level the process. It's important uh, because these sponsors stick around because they know that you're listening. They know that you're interacting with them. And I try to pick sponsors on the show that mean something to me. Uh, Although I have some new affiliates, which I just have picked because I think they're fun. Um, so 
let's get into it. Let's get into our affiliates first. If you really want to essentially send us some money without it costing you anything, there are a couple ways you can do so. First up, sign up for a free trial at Audible. Now, I know that everybody has a free trial Audible thing. A bunch of different podcasts do, and you may have done this before. If you have done it before, you really can't do it again for us. But if you haven't done it yet, I would highly suggest you do so. And you guys know that I listen to all of my content as far as uh, books are concerned on Audible. Um, Let me just see. I'm loading it up right now talk about what I am currently listening to. I'm still making my way through the Powers of Two book which I dig. Um, It's a book about uh, how most of uh, the most creative people, the people that we celebrate in this world, usually come in twos. Um, I think it's a great book. It's a hard one to get through completely because I feel like whoever they hired to do the voice acting on it, it sounds like they just fucking got to speak and spell and they're just slowly typing the book through it. Um, But the content is really great. Uh, let's see what else uh, I listened to a naked thousand strangers I've got about two hours left on that book it is fucking phenomenal uh, I love uh, EMTs and paramedics I think that way of life is so dynamic uh, and uh, so underappreciated and this book goes into the life of uh, EMT slash paramedic and everything that they go through and it's all really great stuff my brother is in that world so I know a lot of the stuff that he's talking about is true um, it's fascinating. So if you're into like uh, strange uh, uh, call stories, like uh, weird sort of like horror scenes, there's a lot of that stuff in there. Um, and if you if you haven't seen it, a great fucking movie is Bringing Out the Dead, which was uh, Nicolas Cage, John Goodman, Martin Scorsese film that came out in the 90s. Uh, that movie is the closest thing to what it's like to be a crazy paramedic. And even though that movie gets very surreal and goes off the fucking rails, um, I've done some ride-alongs with these guys and it feels that way. Um, so definitely check it out, Thousand Naked Strangers. And if you're going to listen to this content, sign up for a free trial at Audible. Let me see if I can read some of their copy here. Uh, let's see. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Audible is the leading provider in spoken word, entertainment, and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. Uh, access to the daily news, digest, etc., etc. Uh, we have plenty of content to keep your audience uh, pers- uh, to help your audience pursue their goals, whether getting fit, finishing more books, or becoming a better parent, leader, or person. Uh, here is what you get with the Audible membership. You can download titles and listen anytime, anywhere, anywhere. Um, even if, so he, here's what I've done. Sometimes I get so busy that I can't keep Audible going. And so I may temporarily cancel it uh, because I know that I'm not going to be reading anything for quite some time. Uh, The app still exists on my phone. All the books that I bought with that app are on my phone still. So you still have access to those, even if you're not doing the monthly uh, subscription. I know a lot of people have asked that question. And then I sign back up again when I need to do so. Um, The app is free. It can be downloaded and installed on smartphones and tablets. You can listen across devices without losing your spot, which is great. Um, And you can listen. You can't decide what to listen to. Don't worry. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge a whole series if you like. So every month, uh, because you're paying monthly for the subscription past the trial date, you pay monthly for it. 
um, they give you uh, a credit a month. So that goes towards something that if you weren't a member of Audible, you would have to, you know, pay for the book. And books can range all different rates. I saw one that I wanted to read the other day. It was like 65 fucking dollars. And the great thing about uh, signing up for Audible is that the credits work for all of those. Make sense? Um, so let me see here. Say audiobooks over books. Yes, audiobooks. I say that all the time. These, the copy that these these places have are just so fucking fascinating that you have to read. Anyway, check them out. Sign up for a trial. Uh, the link is below in the description of this episode. It's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. But definitely click the link below. Sign up for your free trial. And it puts money immediately in our bank account to keep this show alive. Audible trial. All right. Next up. I love this one. Our friends over at BarkBox. We have a deal with BarkBox. If you sign up for any of their services, uh, the link is below. Um, we get paid. You can subscribe for services. Uh, monthly Dog Joy is just a click away. Uh, looks like uh, you can start at like $23 a box. So this is for all of the listeners, especially everybody out here in Los Angeles that has their little love slave at home. They're so excited when you bring them home treats and toys. Why not, why not spoil that little slave every month? <laughs> Let's see here. Let me read some stuff off their website. Our pack has your back. If your dog isn't 100% happy with their bark box, bark box, it's so hard to say that, we'll work with you to make it right. No muss, no fuss, no disappointed pups. Over 2 million dogs served. See why bark box day drives up, drives pups bonkers. Jesus, this coffee's so crazy. Great selection of toys for her to chew on, chase after. She loves all the treats, and she's been learning a variety of tricks. She gets excited every time her special box is delivered. Quote from Debbie and Shadow. So yeah, uh, head on over to BarkBox. <laughs> Love that gimmick. Head on over to BarkBox. Uh, the link is below. Um, if you use our link, they'll know it was us that sent you. Um, and get some treats for your fucking dog. And uh, we'll get paid. See how desperate I am for cash these days? I'm, I'm, I'm deathly allergic to those fucking things. And, you know, a lot of folks are like, Mike, why do you not like animals? I love animals. I think dogs are amazing. I think some of the best actors that I've ever worked with on film have been dogs. Some of the best trained fucking uh, amazing talent have been animals on sets. I love animals. Um, I just think that uh, pet owners suck. <laughs> what a great way to do a read for that. Uh, all right. Anyways, uh, let's see. Supporting the show. Let's go to our sponsor, sponsor, sponsor. Supporting the show, as always, good friends over at Puget Systems. If you're in the marketplace for a new computer, if you're a video editor, if you're uh, working on Photoshop, you need a new machine, head on over to PugetSystems.com. You can choose a PC. Yes, I said it. PC uh, that, that works for you that is custom built to the way you need it. Um, I'm very excited about my Puget systems. I've had them for years. Uh, I just cut my last video, the mom song video on my Puget. 
um, that I shot with the Black Magic, which we'll get to in a sec. But you know what was fascinating? I don't know if you guys have dealt with this yet. Um, I had to import, uh, I shot at 6K, I imported the bra files, I think it's .braw, which come out of the Blackmagic. Um, and they run great on my uh, in my timeline, in my Puget system. If you head on over to blackmagic.com, you can actually download the new codecs. They have new codecs that work really great for, I think it's new codecs, right? Is that what they're, they're called? Yeah, I think it's a codec or a plugin that works really well for Premiere. And so you can run the raw files in your Premiere timeline, which is really fucking awesome. Um, I actually did a 6K timeline with like 23, 25 different tracks of video running real time, raw 6K on my Puget system, which is really great. Um, but I did have trouble. So when I took those files and I had to do cut downs, which oftentimes you have to do for any content that you do right now. So if you're a video maker out there for anything, music videos, commercials, uh, the clients are always asking you to do cut downs. So you're, they're asking you to do like 15 second bits. They're asking you to do like vertical bits for fucking Instagram. And so shooting 6K, when you have to go vertical, so it's instead of 1920 by 1080, it's 1080 by 1920. That's always really difficult when you're shooting smaller aspect ratios because who the fuck has an aspect ratio where the height is 1920, right? And so what I end up doing is with, six, with 6K, I could take the footage from my 6K sequence and paste it into a 1080 by 1920 sequence, which the footage will be much too large for the actual frame. And I can downsize it, I can frame it, I can move it, I can reframe it for vertical. I can have a lot of fun with that stuff. So I did that the other day for everything that I've been posting for the mom song on Instagram and I had trouble running it out. It was fascinating. Uh, as I was trying to run out the footage, uh, H.264 or ProRes, whatever I was trying, anytime I got to the bra files, the 6K bra files that were put into a 1920 by 1080 timeline, any sort of sequence that was smaller aspect than it was originally shot, when it ran it out, it ran it out as like this strange video with black and white stripes on it. I couldn't fucking figure it out. It was so frustrating. But I'm trying to run this thing out and I'm like, why is this not working? Um, and, uh, and so I tried every outlet I could, I tried every format I could, and I was doing a bunch of research online on it and no one specifically had my problem with it. Some folks were like, look, we've had trouble with the, the bra file in Premiere. So luckily I went over to Blackmagic's website. So I went over to their website and they had a brand new update. They had their new codec update that came out like last week. Uh, so I downloaded that, installed that, and then I was able to run out my video again in a smaller aspect uh, sequence. Now prior to this, I didn't have any trouble. If I was working in my 6K sequence and I was running out of 6K master, didn't have any trouble with it. But uh, for some reason, when I was doing it in a smaller aspect ratio, I was having a big problem with it. And I'm talking about this here because I couldn't find anything online about it. So I got this, I downloaded this thing, and then I started to run out my sequences. And what I do is I queue them up and I run them out through Media Encoder, so Adobe's Media Encoder. And as I ran them out, I was noticing that it was running them out with the luminance way down, the brightness on all these clips, these bra clips were super dulled out. It was very gray. I'm like, what the fuck? 
right? So now I can't run out with all that color correction, everything I've done, it's running them out dull. And so I did multiple tests. I'm looking everywhere because this new uh, codec thing had just come out. And so no one was talking about the results of it yet. I couldn't figure it out. And so I just did the process. And I don't know if you guys have ever dealt with computer issues. You have to just break it down and you have to just slowly try all these different ways of doing it, right? Let me try to run it out at this aspect ratio. Let me try to run out with this codec. Let me try to run this out. And I was trying everything and I was getting desperate. I was probably like three, four hours in on something that should have taken me 15 minutes to do. Um, so what I did find out is that this new release, this new bra release that Blackmagic put out, fixed the problem in Premiere only. It didn't fix the problem in Media Encoder. So what you have to do, if you guys are dealing with this, you have to run out your files out of Premiere. Don't output them to your Media Encoder. Because when I did that, it worked fine. Thank fucking God it did. But I love that about my PC. I love that about Puget is that there are a hundred different ways to figure out backdoor ways to fix everything as far as software is concerned. And there are huge online resources with hackers and nerds and people that have spent years cracking software. So they understand how to make stuff work. Um, so working in the PC world, I know from a lot of you that come from Mac side, you're like, well, the customer support isn't the same. Puget's customer support's better. Can you imagine getting on the phone and talking with a real person? That's what you can do with Puget. But beyond that, online, the customer support from hackers, from fellow folks, is a lot more embracing. It's not like going to those old creative cow threads where you go in there and they go, do you know the keyboard shortcuts? And you go, no, and they go, fuck this guy. I hate that shit. It's very elitist. Something about Macs that have continuously been elitist. And by the way, I had an episode planned last week for the show. And what I do is when I'm recording remotely, I'll record on my MacBook Pro. So I have a MacBook Pro laptop, which is very reliable. It's always been reliable in the past, and it's an older version. I'm running a fucking 2012 MacBook Pro laptop. So power to them for building great laptops that exist and continue to exist. But when I went to record shit with Zencaster last week and I had a big director on the line to get on to do this shit, I signed into Zencaster and fuck you Zencaster again. I hate the fact that I'm stuck with you guys right now, but I went to sign on for Zencaster and you have to use Google Chrome and I went on to log on the website and I couldn't load the website. I had to do this research with the director on the line to try to figure out what the fuck was going on. And they go, oh, you need to upgrade your iOS to be able to use this right now, which Mac just released their upgrades. And it was like, well, we're not you're not allowed to use this new upgrade on an older Mac that you have, even though my machine runs properly. So one thing I can't stand about Apple is that they figured out a way with their software upgrades to render their hardware useless. And their hardware works really well for long periods of time. Like I said, I'm rolling right now on my, my Mac laptop, but they're rendering them useless with every software upgrade that they do. I don't like that about it. It's very sinister. So I made that jump to PCs and I found Puget Systems and they are a great company, family owned company uh, that help you build PCs. So head on over to PugetSystems.com and check them out. And our other sponsor, which I started to talk about is Blackmagic. Did those photo shoots last week with Gina 
of me uh, posing in my uh, tiger jumpsuit with my sick Blackmagic 6K Pro camera. I love the little rig, it's phenomenal. Um, it shoots really great images. Uh, it does have a crop factor that you have to look out for. So many of you uh, have to uh, remember how to make the crop factor work for you. So like if you're putting on a standard lens, like if you're putting on like a 24, it's actually not a 24, it's ends up being like a 50 millimeter. So you end up having to shoot wider than you would. I was doing a lot of like fisheye stuff to get my wide angle lenses, uh, my wide angle uh, focal point to work for the mom song video. Um, but once you get over that, it's fucking great. I beat the hell out of that camera. It was hot as hell that day. It was like a hundred and change. And uh, I was running that thing hard, man. And it, it stayed with us. Uh, and the images are gorgeous. You guys have seen them. Um, so if you're in the marketplace for a great camera to have as a director, that's affordable. I think the, the price point on it is under three grand. If you're looking for a camera that's affordable to have to, to practice shoots, to do pickups, to do insert shots, to just run around and, and keep yourself employed by doing small commercials and music videos, um, I highly recommend it. It's a great rig and it shoots 6K, which uh, keeps you ahead of the game as these hardware manufacturers continue to fucking like render our old stuff out useless. 6K seems to be ahead of the game because uh, all TVs these days are 4K. But more importantly, it enables you to reframe, uh, readjust your shots in post. And when you down res that 6K stuff down to 1080, it's super crystal clear. Um, so I really like it. And uh, Blackmagic just doesn't do cameras, man. They do a bit of everything. If you're in the marketplace for color correction software, you're looking for the best of the best, Resolve's out there, man. Blackmagic runs Resolve, and they also make all those really uh, very expensive but really cool consoles that you can use if you're building a color suite and build your color suite on a Puget system because those guys have figured it out. They know how to uh, get the right software, the right hardware to work with your software. And believe it or not, the newest card in the market isn't the way to go. Uh, they post all their benchmark tests on that stuff. So it's a great, I'm super excited to have both these sponsors because they work hand in hand. Um, Blackmagic, go check them out. Go to Blackmagic. The link is below in the episode description. Check them out. Also supporting the show is always Quasar Science. Our friends over at Quasar make the best LED units on the marketplace for lighting. So if you are someone that is looking to build out your kit, I highly suggest you get your hands on a couple Quasar tubes, maybe some bicolor tubes, maybe some rainbow LEDs. Um, they are the type of lights that you can bring your kit to a set with a gaffer and he'll look at you and go, okay, this guy knows what's up. He didn't just buy a bunch of lights off of uh, eBay from China and he has the gaff tape to a fucking uh, two by four. <laughs> Believe me, that happens. Um, so if you're looking to buy some new lights, if you're looking for some high quality LEDs, head on over to Quasar Science and check them out. All right, I think that's our reads for today. Uh, let's get back into it with James.
Now, speaking of uh, talking shit and talking about fil films and movies, uh, I wanted to get into some of that with you. What? Because uh, it is October, and it because is. I am a horror film director, a lot of my fans that listen to the show are horror folks and, and <laughs> scary movie folks. Um, but it blows my mind at this point, because what am I, 43 now? It blows my mind how many films uh, the younger audience hasn't seen. You know, movies that just don't show up on a queue somewhere. And they haven't seen like this whole collection of classic horror films uh, from the 80s, let alone the 70s, let alone the 50s, let alone going back to the origins of it. Um, <clears throat> and I know you haven't prepped for any of this, but off the top of your head... <laughs> Off the top of your head, what would a, oh. a good top five, top five list of horror movies to watch for Halloween this year? That's a big ask. Yes, it is, um, dude. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, Aliens is my all-time favorite film, but I maintain it's not a horror movie. So I it's think like, that it's is like a sci-fi. That's more of a sci-fi yeah, movie. Yeah, it's a platoon movie. But Alien is very much a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alien, I think, would always be in my list of things, just because there's something magical about that film. And not for the obvious stuff, which is that the alien's quite scary and the chest burst scene is intense, but, you know, just little moments, like when Harry Dean Stanton's sort of standing in the water, you know, like the yes. water's coming down from the, from the processor thing, and it's going on his cap, and you're like, you know he's going to get killed, but he's just sitting there just rolling his head through the water, <laughs> yeah. and the camera flicks to the chain, you know, the clink of the chains, and you see Jones the Cat's eye, just the light playing off his eye. There's something almost ethereal about that film. It's magical, the way it takes you on board that ship. And I think, and that's what makes the horror stuff of it so intense, that you're in this sort of slightly hyper-real state. Um, I love Alien. I could watch it endlessly. Well, hold so, on. Bef uh, <clears throat> before you continue, let me cut in here and say that everything that you're describing, because a lot of the folks who listen to the show are directors and writers. Sure. Every everything that you're describing is tonal. Yes. Which I love. And I think yes. a, a lot of folks, especially currently, are overly concerned with like plot and twists and plot twists and everything else that you're doing. With horror, horror for me is a very tonal, visceral vibe thing. And I think that yeah. if you watch any of the greats, like just you describing that sequence that we can all remember, it's a sequence that I will think about when I'm writing sequences. It's yeah. tonal. It's music-based. They're... There, there isn't any fucking dialogue. Nope. Um, and so you're just immersed in this world. And I think that's what I love about fucking horror movies is that you have the ability to shut up and not uh, force feed any sort of messaging, not force feed any sort of script at someone and just walk into a scary room mm. with change and, and such, like, Scott, Scott is such a visual director. Oh. He's so visual. And there's just something about the imagery of that film oh. that has never, ever... Let me, I'm, kills me that I don't remember being there. But, but it just, I just, yeah, I, I think it's magic. But I think you're right. And I think with horror, it, it's like plot. You know, we talk about plot in films a lot. And plot is obviously, you know, story. I, say, like, I mean, Stephen King, I think, has said this in the past. He said, like, story is to be commended. But plot is this sort of knotty, untrustworthy thing that people create to link <laughs> scenes together. And he doesn't trust it and he doesn't like it. And I think there's some truth to that. I think, yeah. have a great story, but it's about a sense of place and it's about a sense of people. And I think, you know, great films, like, tonality is so important because they're about transportation. They're taking you to a place. Yes. You want to believe you're there. And that's why I, that's why I love film so much and tv anything that does that that transports you there and, and i think people sometimes watch films in different ways and i think critics can sometimes be quite guilty of this where 
you want something objectively and you're looking at something say, ah, oh, that's an excellent Dutch angle. Good work. Excellent cinematography. It's like, <laughs> if you're doing that, you're watching films wrong. Like, that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be like, dude, I'm on a spaceship and there's an alien coming at me. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's where your head should be at. Like, you should be in the scenario. It should transport you there. And I always find like when I come out of a film, I don't know about you, like when the film is finished, like a great film for me will be one where I literally cannot have a conversation for five, 10 minutes afterwards because I'm still there yes. and I need to come back to earth. And until I'm back on earth, I can't speak to humans. <laughs> like it takes me a while to readjust. <laughs> totally. And I love that when you, when there's that decompression moment after a film. Well, when I was younger and, uh, you know, really sort of deep into film examination and I was in film school and all of my friends that I would hang out with were film nerds and we would sit around and we, We'd uh, break apart technique consistently. We'd watch movies and just sort of get lost in the uh, process that it takes to make those movies. And there hit this point where we'd start to argue as nerds. We'd start to argue over like specific elements and, and be like, I don't think he used the sound cue in the proper place. And you'd start to really sort of dissect this stuff. And I remember hitting a point where I think I was hanging out with a bunch of nerds and one of my buddy's girlfriend who wasn't in the film industry was just rolling her eyes and just falling asleep and i went ah oh, we're doing this wrong you're supposed to lose yourself in these worlds and if if we're not if we're so hyper focused on like it's like being a chef that's hyper focused on the knife in the fucking in the in the pan that he's using to sear a yeah. steak it, instead of being like hey this is the this is the emotional context this is the emotional timestamp that this will give an audience this is how i felt when i saw this thing um that is the most important elements of film to me i think yeah. you know but isn't it isn't it all i mean i guess all art not even just all storytelling it's supposed to engage you emotionally first like yes intellectual appreciation is great but it should engage with you on an emotional level and again this could be a credit thing like when you try and intellectualize things too much i think sometimes you do miss what's you know the intended point of the art like what it's trying to do whether it's trying to scare you excite you like you know make you feel disconcerted like devastate you like they're yeah. trying to get an emotional reaction mm -hmm. you know they're not they're not hoping that you're sitting there thinking oh yes i'm loving the layered subtext that they put in <laughs> that's not what they're looking for you know great that it's there but that's not the goal well and i mean there are certain films out there that you feel like the filmmaker's like, check out what I did with this one shot. And you're just like, okay. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's the difference between a movie uh, being a one watch, you know, where yeah. you can sort of digest it quickly and, and simply and never really think about it and want to go back to it again. Or you have a movie like fucking Die Hard that is just a consistent <laughs> return for folks to, I mean, you wrote an epic article on Die Hard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So... I loved that. I spoke to everyone. It was great. Okay, before we before we go, okay, <laughs> let's get into number two. All right. So, what would okay. number two on your list be? And I'm not I'm not even putting these in a specific order. There's no sort of like I'm not because that's a lot of pressure. I love pressuring you. Into oh. this. <laughs> I mean, I I feel Jaws has to be on the list. I think For that's. Sure. That would be a, a serious omission not to have Jaws on that list. For sure. And it's funny when people talk about Jaws now, and, and so many people don't. It sounds stupid to say, but so many people don't seem to associate it with the horror genre. Oh, why? I don't, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and 
I've spoken to people about this. They're like, oh, but is Jaws a horror? I'm like, what the? What do you think it is? <laughs> Kill a shark, ripping it, causing a horror film. You know, it's stalking people. Like, Maybe it's, the it's, years of Shark Week have just destroyed. Perhaps that that's what people. it is. Perhaps too many people have watched The Meg. You know, I think you know. But Jason Statham punches these things. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's an incredible film. Oh. It's, I mean, it's incredible for what happened on camera. It's incredible for what happened off camera. Ugh. But yeah, it's 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 a masterclass in film. I mean, just the opening, just the the, mm-hmm. the sequence of the woman yeah. running across the beach, and Spielberg is the ultimate for for camera coverage, a but also suspense coverage, and yeah, that movie is is like if you want a film course on how to do uh, monster in the house type film, you yeah. have to start there. You really do. Yeah, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I feel like I need like something theological in there. I see. I I put the Exorcist, but I actually don't think I would. I think I'd put the Omen in over the Exorcist. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, just not not. I'm, you know, I'm not dissing the Exorcist. I'm just saying <laughs> for, for pure fear for me, Omen does it like that. That film scares the shit out of oh, me. Even now, it does. One. It does scare the shit out of me. It's a who dir- who directed the original? I can't remember. The Omen, way, way back in the day. Oh, I see. Back, so I want to say in terms of years, I think it's 1976. It's a Richard Donner movie, but I'm thinking, was it 76 or 75? I think it's 76. I think it's 76. 76, you're right. Yeah, 76. 76. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, I, I mean look, I, I watched the sequels as well, and they exist. Uh, but, <laughs> but, like, but that original is... It's fantastic. Is it's fantastic. And it is Richard Donner that did that, isn't it? Fuck, I forgot yeah. that he did that. Yeah. Yeah, that movie's fantastic. And I agree with you. The Exorcist isn't on my list. But I will say this. The extended cut of The Exorcist, the opening in the extended cut, I think is the best, my favorite stuff from that movie. Really? I don't even know if I've seen that. Oh, what's, it is what's, so what's added to it? good. It's, all, it's the beginning with... Um, Oh my god, um, I'm so terrible with names. The the Give actor, the priest. Ah oh, yes, yes, yes. Like he's uh. he's over in the Middle East, and so they it really extend out that sequence of like yeah. it's almost like an Indiana Jones sequence. Yeah, where like they they're excavating the statue and everything that happens, and the cutting in that sequence is so dangerous. And I I just watched last week. I watched the Rennie Harlan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know the exorcist the beginning which he yeah. tries so hard to recreate those elements yeah uh, and it just doesn't happen uh it's tone again because when i watched yeah. the rennie harlan thing he's you could just see him going okay and i have to insert shots of guys like you know uh scary dudes in a in a in a hallway sequence like hitting metal and you're know, like none of this makes sense like <laughs> <laughs> in the original it's totally correct um yeah so anyway whatever uh all right so then the omen okay where are we going next okay i feel like i need some some more recent things in here i feel like i think i need some 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 newer stuff what would i pick what would i pick why is that um, difficult to do that's an interesting question well i mean it shouldn't be because actually i think i think horror's on an absolute tear and has been for the last 20 odd years like mm-hmm. it's extraordinary and i think it's part of that is is the nature of of the practicalities i mean you'll know this better than i do of making horror movies in that nowadays it feels like that mid-budget sort of like 
section of the movie industry has kind of fallen away. Yes. And we're in that kind of like, you can make cheap films or you can make films that cost half a billion dollars, but there's nothing kind of in the middle. Yes. Um, whereas horror films are that brilliant genre where they don't cost that much to make, but they can make a lot of money. Sure. Um, I, my, one of my complaints as a filmmaker, and I've had this on the show, um, is that I feel like because of that, you said it perfectly, where the, the, like the mid-range sort of drama prior to the streaming services, and I still kind of do it with the streaming services, but that sort of fell apart where you couldn't yeah. just go make like a $20 million drama piece. Mm. And so then I felt like uh, there was this workaround. <laughs> there was this workaround where folks were saying that, uh, oh, this is a horror movie. And you go watch the horror movie and you go, this is a fucking family drama. And someone pulls a knife out at some point <laughs> in this thing. This is not a horror movie. Um, and I think one of the strangest stories that I've heard about this was that um, uh, It Follows. Yes. And, and I had, like, I spent the day on set um, with uh, one of the producers from that movie. And we were just sort of at Video Village and sort of hanging out, just talking shit. And they were telling me that originally It Follows was a drama. Originally. What? Yes. How does that even work? That according, terrifying. <laughs> according to a producer, that it was originally a drama. And I don't know if it was, and take this with a grain of salt, I don't know if it was the producer saying the, the, the production company was like, this needs to be a horror, but they changed that genre. And it doesn't make any fucking sense to me until you watch Under the Silver Lake, which is the second film that he did. And yeah. you go, ah, okay, all right. So supposedly that movie uh, wasn't a horror movie to start. I have wow, no idea. really interesting. Yeah, I have no idea. Because It Follows is one of those those horrors, I would say, that, that's kind of stuck with me over yes. the last sort of like, couple of decades like that's what that's a really good modern horror film yes it's so it's such a simple idea just so perfectly executed uh, and just it's the inevitability it's like it's all the all great stalker movies whether it be terminator or whatever it is it's the inevitability the unstoppability of the thing that is chasing them and in this case it is quite <laughs> literally unstoppable yeah um, and vicious yeah. too i think the thing yeah. that makes that whole movie for me is that is they show they show what could happen to you and so when they show that one shot of that poor woman that has her legs broken on the beach, you go, fuck. And yeah. so now when people are running from literally nothing on screen, you're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're going to have your legs broken and be half buried in the sand somewhere. <laughs> it's also a case that brilliant trope of, uh, you know, like if you have sex in a horror movie, you're going to die. Well, in this case, <laughs> the, the entity is literally a sexually transmitted disease. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I interrupted you. Where were you going? Where were you going? God, I don't even know at this stage. I, let me think. I, do you know what? I would maybe pick Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. I fucking um, love that movie. Yeah, me too. Me too. It was, it was all shot in Super 8 as well, wasn't it? Like, or Mini DV. It was, mini, it? It mini, it was DV. mini DV. That was it. it dude, yeah, which it was, was shot in Mini DV, which is nuts. It was mind-blowing, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's just incredible absolutely incredible and there's something so visceral about that i mean yeah it's a zombie movie but they're not as they always said it, they're not zombies they're infected um <laughs> but they have their own feel about them because wasn't it like like romero zombie films it was about creeping dread again inevitability like things the inexorable advance of the dead sure and this is like you know someone's bitten they'll turn in three seconds and then within five seconds they'll be ripping your intestines out of your mouth like it's it was so full-on Oh, and um, dude, the sequence that I remember specifically in that was uh, Cillian walking into uh, the church and uh, looking down off the balcony, and there's this sort of moment of of sorrow at all these all these dead people in this church, and he just meekly 
hello? <laughs> and that fucking priest looks up at him and he starts running up that yeah. staircase. Yeah. God damn, that's awesome. The man. bit that always sticks to me is when, when it's him and Naomi Harris and, and the guy and they go in and he, like the guy's been bitten and no one really knows. And Naomi Harris sees it in his eye and just lays into him with the machete. Oh, it's just this so good. explosion of violence because she's like, you've literally got seconds. And that bit when, when Brendan Gleeson, you know, when he gets oh the, the drop of blood, falls in his eye. And he's basically saying goodbye to his daughter. And he knows he's got like four or five seconds. <laughs> like he doesn't have much time to do it. And then he turns. You're like, oh, this is just heartbreaking. I would say this. Yeah. The Walking Dead TV show would be nothing without that movie. Oh, yeah. Well, like in absolutely the case. Because well, like Kirkman wrote the comic. Like that, certainly the way Walking Dead the comic opens. Sure. Like feels so heavily inspired by 28 Days. Sure. So heavily Completely. inspired. Like waking up in the hospital, all of it, the whole device. Yeah. And then the, just the general drama that, that comes about from like the long term uh, effects of this mm. world and how it emotionally affects all the characters, which is interesting because Danny Boyle was such, he's such a great suspense director. What was the movie that he did with... Um, Oh my fucking god! My brain is not working this morning. Oh, there's a staircase in the poster. It was with um, what's his name? Who plays Obi Wan Kenobi? Oh, Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor. What was that? What was his first film? Hold on. Oh, well, way way back, Shallow Grave. Shallow Grave. Yeah. Yes, yes. That was like such a great suspense movie. And then yeah. he had like a lot of really great drama stuff. So being a a, a director that has a grasp over how to just make you feel make you feel so emotional in a close-up, I think that works so well for, for 28 Days Later, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. What did you think of 28 Weeks Later? I, I watched it because I really liked the first one so much, and tonally I felt like it was still a lot of fun, but it's yeah. not one of those movies that I'll go back and go, hey, let's put on 28 Weeks Later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm 100% the same. I, I, I went on set of actually of, of 28 Weeks, uh, and I remember just because it, it was the farmhouse sequence, you know, at the very beginning. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. When Carl essentially runs for it, uh, and it was that sequence. I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be, and I must admit, when I saw it, like the level of violence quite early on. Do you know, like when when Carlisle kisses his wife, who's immune. Yep. And then immediately turns and then sticks his thumbs in her eye sockets, <laughs> and you're just like, oh my god, what is happening? Like this is so intense. Yeah, I found that I found that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great selection. Great selection. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm sure I've got one more. I must have one more. Yes. I've got to have room. How many have I done? I've done four. Surely you've done I've done four. four. Yeah, I think you've done. I've done four. Yeah, you've done four. Okay. 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 So many, so many films. I'm not going to. I could choose Drag Me to Hell is a good choice. <laughs> yeah. Or Blair Witch, the original Blair Witch, but I'm not going to do Blair Witch. Babadook? No. 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 Again, a good one. These are things I would like to put on. Do you know what? I'm going to put it on, not because it's the best horror film, but just because I love it so much and because it draws so heavily on Aliens, which is my favorite film. And that would be Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. Okay. Um, yeah, all right. Which, you know, again, not everyone, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I just think what he did with that, was he took, I mean, even so much, they use the aliens, they use Horner's alien score, I think, in the trailer for the film as well, just to sort of lay it on. But he, t he turns it into aliens and he keeps that kind of, um, that Romero commentary to a certain extent on, you know, consumerism and whatnot. It's not quite as subtle. It sort of bats you around the head a little bit more. But I, I loved it. I love I loved Ving Rhames in it. I thought Sarah Polly was great in it. There's just, there's something really intense about it and i know there's a lot of hate for Zack snyder in some areas i don't know uh, I, I love him yeah i love I, him I, too man i yeah. totally do i i love the fact that he can still be making movies that way 
I have yeah. a love, I have a love hate relationship with like Michael Bay films. Like I, you <laughs> go watch, enough. but The Rock is a classic. It's a classic, <laughs> but I'm happy that they're still made because yeah. I enjoy that sort of popcorn going to the movie theater. Maybe I'm going to hate this. Maybe I'm going to love this, but I know it's going to be fucking crazy. I know it's going to be an adventure ride. And I feel like Zack Snyder, <laughs> I can say that. I can say that about his films with a whole lot less shame. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like some of it, like, I, I'm less enamored, I think, with his, with his DC output. Though I will say when the Snyder Cut of Justice League came out, I did a kind of a Snyder rewatch. And yeah. I went through Man of Steel and I watched Dawn of Justice, like the uncut edition, which actually is much better. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and then I went straight into to uh, the Snyder Cut of Justice League, which again is just galactically better than Whedon's cut. Although I must admit, like doing it in 4-3, I thought it was deranged. I don't know what he was thinking there. <laughs> but, um, but really liked it. And that kind of big sort of like almost like Snyder quest I went on. I spent a whole day doing it. I was like, Do you know what? These take a lot of shit. They are not bad at all. And I know they are you know, humorless. And I know sure, that, sure. you know, Superman and Batman are not generally supposed to kill the shit out of hundreds of people, which they <laughs> both do. And you're like, sure, I can get past all that. But, you know, they're, they're, they're not bad at all. I think, actually, you know, had he got to make the films that he wanted to make, um, I think, yeah, he would take... And also, Watchmen is amazing. Like, I think Watchmen is phenomenal. And um, yeah. But I, I also, when I watch his uh, DC stuff and I watch the Batman and the Superman stuff... He's essentially just doing Jim Lee comic books. And, and being a comic book nerd, I always loved that. I mean, I was a huge, I was a huge image kid when they first made that jump from Marvel to Image and all the comic yeah. book artists when went over Spawn and did that. Spawn and Savage Dragon and stuff were all coming All that out. stuff. And those books yeah. looked amazing and the panels were amazing. They printed on yeah. glossy paper. But if you go back and <laughs> read those books, a lot of those books, the stories are trash. Like absolute fucking trash. Super true. Yeah. But I, I still. <laughs> love and respect and i feel like there's there's such a huge influence on my work but they're mm -hmm. an influence on on snyder's work for fucking sure i mean yeah. i follow jim lee and i think he did a post that he uh, essentially storyboarded out snyder's entire snyderverse for movies that didn't even get made supposedly is what yeah. i heard so i i love it for what it is man and for me it's like going to pick up an old image book off off the comic book <laughs> shelf that's really it's it. nice and familiar yeah i mean we talk about sort of like Halloween movies, but you know, I'll be honest, like how like horror on TV at the moment is not in a bad place at all. Like, have you, have you watched um, uh, Mike Flanagan's new new? The name is Oh God, Midnight Mass. That's I, it. I haven't Midnight seen Mass? it yet. Is it great? Oh, it's good. It's really really good. Like, I didn't enjoy Bly Manor very much, if I'm honest with you. Yeah, uh, Haunting of Bly Manor. I thought that was, but then I don't. I, to be honest, I think he only directed was it one episode of that. I don't think he was as involved. I think partly because he was doing pre-production on Midnight Mass, but Haunting of Hill House I thought was really really good. I love Flanagan stuff. And you mentioned one as earlier, the one of that he does, and he does a few of them, but that one in Hill House that's basically the whole episode, that is insane. Just insane. <laughs> the fact that they built the set for the house next to the set for the funeral parlor so they could do this incredible one-shot episode. I mean, fair play to him. Well, that's mad stuff. That's why I work in this genre, man, is that you can actually get real technical and then folks are going to appreciate it. They, they watch mm. it. And but do you think people do? Like, I wondered about that. I mean, you look at you know, sure, like Birdman, 1917, they cheat in places. And you think, I, I applaud what they've done there from a filmmaking point of view. But equally, how many people notice, like genuinely notice? Like certainly for like, I mean, sure, 1917, it was, it was part of the marketing. Like people made a big thing of it. But sure. that episode in particular of Hill House, like, you know, 
people who like work in in film and filmmaking will obviously notice and i think sure. a certain type of audience will but i've got to feel like the majority of the people on netflix had no clue like no clue and yet they probably killed themselves making it <laughs> well and there's a part of me who's just like was it worth it i mean i loved it and i love you for doing it but really well hold on let, let let's go back to jaws right let's go yeah. back to jaws for a minute and um Let's talk about that sequence where uh, Brody is on the beach and he looks out and a kid gets attacked and they do the infamous stretch pull on him yeah. sitting on that chair. I don't think the audience, I know for a fucking fact, even now, most people don't know how a stretch pull's done. They don't understand the technicalities behind it. They just know that when they watch that shot, their stomach went in their throats. The yeah. same way his did. And I think as a, at least with me as a storyteller, I think the result of a technique, mm. I'm more concerned about than the technique itself. So I'll spend more time bragging about the fact that I was able on a, on a fucking flat surface, make <laughs> you feel like you were sitting on that beach and your balls went in your fucking throat. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what it comes down to for any of this stuff. Like, mm. um, and, I, and I think a lot of, I think you can get distracted as a filmmaker in the, in the nerdy shit and do it. <laughs> And do it not for good reason. Like I had a filmmaker come to me once and he goes, I shot an entire movie and he's bragging. He goes, I shot an entire movie with a 50 millimeter lens. I go, why? <laughs> and he's like, well, cause I did it. And I go, that's like saying I cooked an entire meal with a fork. <laughs> <laughs> like, we, we applaud that you managed it, but dude, what were you thinking? <laughs> Does it emotionally do anything? I, I was looking mm. at a friend of mine. He he sent me a, a rough cut last week. And he goes, hey, will you look at my rough cut? And he did a really good job shooting coverage. He shot really gorgeous takes from multiple angles of this conversation. That's a suspenseful conversation. And when he was editing it, which a lot of young filmmakers do, they get so concerned with the technique. So he's cutting like... Uh, when he should be cutting, he's cutting to like her hand and he's cutting to the thing. And it's just technically well cut, but it's emotionally void of anything. And I said to him, he goes, well, what do you think? I said, you have a fucking, you have all the pieces for something to be amazing here. What you need to do is go back and look at your coverage and write down the emotional definition of each one of these shots. Like how does it emotionally make you feel? And once you get that formula in place, then exploit that fucking emotion. Don't cut it because it's technically the correct thing to do. Like focus on how I'm gonna feel as the audience member watching this thing and then rely on the hundred plus years of time that say uh, an audience feels this way when they see a wide shot, an audience feels this way when you do a stretch pull, an audience feels this way when you do a jump cut or an L cut or cut to a reaction. Utilize those things to push that emotion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's, you're right, and it's exactly what I guess what we were talking about earlier. See, I've been a victim of my own film criticness there. It, <laughs> but you're right; it's about the emotion, and it, it's not about. That's the whole point. They're not supposed to be. He doesn't. Mike Flanagan doesn't want people sitting there thinking, "Wow, look at that single take. It's yes. incredible. He was on there. I wonder where the scene shifts there." He wants you to feel the kind of relentless nature of the episode, so that there's no cut to pull you out of the story that he's telling. Like exactly as you're saying, it's it's an emotional choice that he's doing. It just takes a lot of work. Well, and this brings up an interesting point because now we're talking about we're talking about advertising for movies. Right. Mm. And so now you're talking about what is clickbait, what makes something interesting for 
uh, the general populace that is just overloaded with consist consistent content. Like I, I can't wake up in the morning without seeing a fucking logo for something somewhere. Yeah. And so I, like you, I know for a fact that these meetings take place with the marketing team on these films where it's like, what can we exploit for uh, promotions on this? And if you see a movie like, uh, what was it, 1917, of course they're gonna exploit the technical aspect of it because no one's gonna click on like, hey, here's a World War One fucking period piece. No one gives a shit about that right now, as far as clickbait internet stuff is concerned. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I don't know, just speaking technically, and I, we, we've talked about this in, in length on this show, but I think for me, it was Jurassic Park that really changed everything. And I remember being a kid seeing Jurassic Park and going to the movie theater going, how the fuck did they grow dinosaurs? Because yeah. we didn't know shit about it. Like there, <laughs> there were behind the scenes stuff that was for the industry, like promotional stuff that they would pass around in the industry angle of stuff. But they weren't doing like, here's, here's what we do. Prior to that movie, it was still magician work. You weren't saying yeah. like, here's, here's where I hide the fucking rabbit when I pull it out of my hat. And I think with, um, you know, Jurassic Park, they were so proud of the fact that they made dinosaurs that it really changed how they market movies. And now like it became like DVD extras and, and yeah. thank God for those. Cause I, those, those were my film school, but it really hardens the audience. It really changes the, the audience's perspective on these things. Do you feel the same way? Oh yeah, I mean, Jurassic Park for me, I think, was the very first film where I couldn't see the joints. Like, <laughs> like, like Terminator Two, the effects were mind blowing, but at no point did I think that there was a liquid metal robot running right, around. Right, like, right, wasn't a thing. <laughs> Jurassic Park, exactly as you say, I was like, they have dinosaurs. Where did they get the dinosaurs? These dinosaurs look real, right. and. It's it's it, it again. It's such a watershed film because you look at so many. Like you look at the Alien films. Like Alien One hasn't aged at all. Aliens hasn't aged at all. Right. Alien Three, Alien Resurrection, both look like shit. And the only reason for that is is because CGI just wasn't where they wanted it to be. Like sure. no one's fault. It's just the technology is limiting, and you can see clearly that this isn't a real thing. Whereas you know. Cameron had like dancers and movement artists in rubber suits and it holds up because of that. Jurassic Park was a moment where there were, you were like, okay, ILM have just knocked this out the park and they have got it to the point now where you can't tell the difference. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's an ex and it, I know, okay, and it's an amazing film as well. I mean, that helps. It was a terrible film with great dinosaurs. Maybe you wouldn't remember it, but you know, the combination of a great story brilliantly made and then absolute sort of like watershed effects just yeah it's a perfect storm isn't it it is uh, but the thing that i find fascinating is i wonder as a filmmaker i wonder if it was detrimental that they spent so much time sort of talking about how that fucking was made because then after that it was a breakfast from every producer every production company that made a movie in hollywood like this is how we did this and so then you're like pumping gas in like middle america and the gas station attendants like i don't like the effects in that movie and you're like why do you even fucking know <laughs> no one needs to know how the sausage is made it ruins absolutely everything yeah yeah which is fascinating and so i guess to bring it back to what i was saying before that is an angle i mean because the hardest part right now is to get I think the biggest currency in our industry is time right now. 
It's like mm. how to how to get time from folks. And I know the streaming services think this way. Time is huge. That's why Netflix, you can't just sit on Netflix and not have it autoplay a fucking movie. Like yeah. these guys are just specifically uh, trying to keep you watching, keep you addicted, keep, keep you subscribed to this stuff. Um, and so uh, it, because you essentially work in the press behind this with Empire Magazine and sort of promoting these movies, we're seeing a shift now where it's it went from being like, here's technically how these movies are made. And that, that was what everybody was looking at. Now it's becoming more social issue based as to whether or not like the, the films are being made by a certain demographic or if the films mm. are following a certain thing. Are you finding that that's like the big push these days to get movies promoted? I think I think it varies. I, I'm fascinated by the angles that that these marketing teams come up with. Look, and I, I sympathise with them because ultimately they need to sell movie tickets. Sure, we all want them to sell movie tickets so they can make more movies. But and it's difficult for them. Like I remember when they marketed Slumdog Millionaire and the poster made it look like a romantic comedy. Yeah, it's like what are you doing? Like genuinely, what were you thinking with this? <laughs> but then equally, like I can only imagine the meeting when Denny Villeneuve comes in and say, "Hey, I've made Dune." Marketing guys, sell this. It's a massive, entirely humorless, huge science fiction. Now, great. Is it like lasers and set? No, no. It's set on a desert planet, but there are worms. Okay, great. Is that jokes? Absolutely not. It is utterly without humor. I take it incredibly fucking serious. Fine, fine. But is it commercial? No, I've shot it with an art house sensibility. It's like, great. Fantastic. Thanks, Denny. That's brilliant. No one's going to see this. Thankfully, and I can't emphasize this enough, uh, that doesn't appear to be the case. It is, I think, June is actually my film of the year. I fucking love it. Oh, um, so you've seen it. it. Oh, you've seen it already? I've seen it, yeah. And it's done well in the territories that it's opened in, which is great when it opens in the UK and in the US soon. Uh, hopefully, it will make a sizable amount of money so Denis can go and make an, an, another incredibly uncommercial June film to finish the story because it's only half a film. It's June part one. Um, and it is magnificent. And Frank Herbert would be proud, but I kind of digress. Um but yeah, like I, I see what they try to do. They have to package things and they want to put them in boxes because they know how to sell them. But, you know, some films do defy that. And I think some of the more interesting films are, are not easily marketed. And it is a shame when things die for that reason. And But I think like lack of a, a decent in for marketing um, is bad. But but mismarketing things, I think, is worse, especially if you sell yeah. something as something and then people go in as like, this is, this is not what I came here to see. I mean, when we write about things, because I guess to a certain extent, the press, we are not a part of the marketing machine, but we are certainly, the marketing machine, I think, would disagree on that point. Uh, completely, but, yeah. Um, yeah, they certainly think we are. But like, what we look for uh, when we write about films is, is, is human interest. It's, story, it's, I mean, it, it's storytelling on a much stor smaller scale. So, so, I mean, just to use, to use uh, you know, Dune as an example, it's, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, you know, sure, we could talk about the fact they went to Wadi Rum and they shot that, and I'm sure that's part of the story. But what we're thinking about is like, what's the story? And it's the fact that, you know, Denis geeked out on these books as a child and he made a throwaway comment in an interview that he'd love to do Dune, which got back to someone else. And like, like there's a really interesting human story there. And I think certainly when I write work, film features, you know, I go on set, I speak to people, you know, and I'm talking about the craft of filmmaking and we're geeking out, whatever it is. But what you're looking for is that human interest story. It's like, what you know, what would be my film? What would be my three-act story about the making of this film? Mm. Um, and you're trying to find that, and then you're trying to construct a film feature 
around that theme using your, you know, quotes as your as your sort of shots, whatever is your footage, and you edit it as best you can to sort of tell a compelling story. Because that's ultimately what it is. If all I did was list how they did the effects and talk about who was in it, no one would read it. So, <laughs> yeah, it'd be a very dry it. magazine at that point. It would. It would. You know, I like to think we don't do that. Yeah, that, that would be American cinematographer. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah, because... That I, I, marketing is such an important part of, of what we do as filmmakers because what we do is so fucking expensive. Yes. Like it, exactly. it, it can't be done. Like if it wasn't as expensive, I would have had 40 fucking movies shot at this point, <laughs> you know? Um, but uh, I'm, I'm always fascinated about that relationship between the press and between the marketing mm. team because it, it is very much there. And I've spent enough time working in advertising where I also understand that that's a big part of advertising these days and and and, and trying to get the attention of folks that are, it, oftentimes they just feel like they're lethargically just swiping through content. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that must be the bane of your existence, trying to get people's attention. I mean, it's it's tough. And I think it's it's got so much tougher for sort of creative people working in this industry now, like trying to make films, trying to make TV shows, because the amount of noise out there is extraordinary. I mean, you look at the release schedule back in like the 70s and 80s, you know, hey, what is the film that is coming out this week? Well, this is the film that is coming out. And now it's like, how many films came out this morning? I don't know, 58? Did you see any of them? Fuck no. You know, it's like, there's so much of this stuff, like Squid Game, which is now... The most watched thing on the whole of Netflix. I haven't. They didn't. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't even seen it yet. Is it good? No, well, I mean, I'm I'm sitting down to watch it. I have not watched it either. I've been putting it off because I've got so much other stuff to watch for yes. the dozen other podcasts I got to do. But but like, it, and what's interesting is one of the reasons I haven't seen it is because we didn't review it on the Pilot TV podcast because it's one of these things that Netflix just dropped. So Netflix have this really fascinating marketing model where certain properties like Stranger Things they will market to death. The cast will do a thousand interviews. There'll be promos. There'll be adverts. They'll hype it to the max, and then they choose other properties. Not all of them foreign language, I might add. And they use what I think they've described as anti-hype, where they don't even tell press it's coming. It just turns up on Netflix and they'll be like, oh, so this came out this morning. Go nuts. Weird. And the reason they do it is that apparently, because uh, I think Ted Sarandos has talked about this a little bit, but we've spoken to someone who works for Netflix uh, as well. And they, and they were saying, like, there's the Netflix audience. There's a discoverability. There's something they love about turning on Netflix and just not knowing what's going to be up there on their carousel. Just no idea what's going to be there. And to discover something new and then to talk about it and for that word of mouth thing to happen really works for a certain type of show. And for Squid Game, I mean, the fact that <laughs> this this Korean language thing about like death games <laughs> has become the most watched thing ever in the history of Netflix, well, original programming on Netflix. It blows my mind. And to a certain extent, it makes me wonder why, you know, Netflix might be onto something. Do they need critics? Maybe I should find another job. I have no idea. Uh, I don't know. That's fascinating. I mean, maybe it wouldn't work as well if, if there wasn't critics. I, you probably have to have the yin and yang for that for yeah. that idea. I mean, we've work. talked about it a lot, even after it came out. Hey, we didn't see this thing, but you should totally watch it because. So, yeah, we've done, we've done a fair bit of that. Yeah, yeah. Because then you guys still have to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fascinating, man. It's fascinating stuff when you think about it. Because at the end of the day, we all like, you were saying before that, th that these students have to put things in a little box. Well, yeah. we're a box culture. I mean, Happy Meals, everything fucking else. Like, yeah. as a culture, we like to have things, to, like, we like to be told when something's fucking great. We, we like to be told, like, when something's cool or, 
we, I mean, I like the idea of, of someone walking over to me going, you haven't heard this album before. This album's fucking amazing. And you go, what? Um, and that's the world that we live in. And I think that a lot of the stuff that I love as a kid is, I hate to say it this way, it's because of the marketing for it. And especially being a, a product of it, of an 80s child in that time period where Reagan came out and said, it's okay to market to children. And then all of a sudden <laughs> you have fucking Transformers and you have G.I. Joe and all the all these cartoons that are specifically angled to sell uh, toys and material. And so mm. there's a whole generation that has grown up in the marketing structure. Um, and it's it's fascinating when you hear how people define themselves by it, you know, yeah. where it's like, what are you, are you a fucking, are you a dark crystal person? Are you a labyrinth person? <laughs> you know what I mean? Are you Star yeah. Trek, Star Wars, you know? Um, it's, it's wild, man. But you remember like back then, like back, back, you know, go back to eighties, even nineties and stuff when, <laughs> when there was no internet to find this. So no one knew this stuff was coming. JJ Abrams, I think has talked about this a fair old bit. Like the first time you knew a film had even been made or was even being made was when that teaser came up in front of another film. Yes. Like I remember, I don't even remember what film I was watching, but I must've been in my late teens and a trailer for Star Trek Generations came up. And I was like, no fucking way! There's a next generation movie! I I swear to God I came this close to tearing off all my clothes and running naked around the cinema. I was so excited. It just blew my absolute mind. And I had no idea this was happening. And it is, to a certain sense, such a shame now. And obviously I, I'm part of this, but that everyone knows everything and everyone's seen on-set pictures. And it's so yeah. hard yeah. to keep things under wraps. And I, you know, as someone who's properly spoiler-phobic, um, I, I do think it's sad. I think there's there's something joyous. And I always say this with Midnight Mass, which we talked about very briefly earlier. It's like, when we talked about it on the podcast, I was like, watch this show and don't know anything about it. And when we reviewed it, we, we didn't say anything about the plot at all. We talked about some of the characters, didn't talk about the plot, because it was like, I want people to go into this not knowing what it is. I don't want them to know, they'll know it's a horror, because it's Mike Flanagan, but not what type, what subgenre is. Don't, don't, because you don't even find out till like halfway through the show. Huh. But it's, it's a surprise. The show is a surprising show. And part of the power of it, part of the joy of it is exploring it. And then when the pieces fall into place, you're like, oh my God, it's, that's what it is. Mm. And it, we don't get that, I think, as much now. And I think, you know, the internet has done many good and many, many bad things. Um, but what it's done is it's devalued information. Like, like information is now so free and easy to get. But there was something about, as you mentioned, discoverability of sort of being tipped off to, off to something, to discovering and knowing something that other people didn't know because they hadn't been in the right place at the right time. Like, I used to watch you know, MTV's Postmodern and Headbangers Ball and stuff to, uh -huh. to find these new bands because there was no other way to discover uh -huh. this shit. Like, how else would you do it? Yeah, dude, totally. And now it's like, well, you know, I'll, I'll know because it'll be in my Twitter feed and, and I will miss nothing. And I just, I think it's a shame. I think that there was, there was something cool and inclusive about just, just you know, being there and, and digging these things out, like panning for gold. Yeah, well, dude, I've had multiple episodes that talk about this, and it's 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 this weird line because a lot of younger listeners are rolling their eyes and going, "Listen to these two old guys talking about how <laughs> shit used to be." Look, there is a sense of nostalgia involved with this. Sure, there is, but more than anything else, and this is something that I really discovered with music. As a kid, I grew up very immersed in in music. I worked at a music store when I was a teenager. Uh, I ended up. 
Uh, then going on to direct music videos for a lot of these bands that I grew up loving mm -hmm. and being a big part of that. Like I had my videos on Headbangers Ball, which was fucking insane. That's cool. Uh, dude, crazy. And then, um, you know, very spoiled. I got to go to shows for free, got to do all this sort of stuff. And then when the industry changed um, because of Napster and because of us stealing CDs, which we all do, mm. Um, then uh, it became a lot different for me and it became harder to find good music. And so then I started to turn to blogs and I was turning to like, you know, Pitchfork and all these different places looking for yeah. new recommendations. And then we come to uh, Spotify, which was very algorithm based. And I feel the same way with a lot of the streaming service stuff where, you know, they go, what do you like? You like cheeseburgers? We got fucking cheeseburgers, you know? And, you, <laughs> and so then you're just like, I'm... Is, is all that's out there cheeseburger? Like, I have no idea. Yeah. And so I got really sort of depressed by music and I kind of fell out of music for about a year, two, two years, three years almost. Um, and it was, thankfully, uh, my girlfriend, I don't know why I never did it. She went out and bought me a record player and she goes, here's a record player, get back into music. And I went, ah, oh. and I, I had to go back to the vinyl shops and the vinyl stores and go into places and then there's something about walking into a store and you hear something playing. You go, what the fuck is this? And he's like, oh, you've never heard this shit before. And, and suddenly you have that emotional connection to it. Yeah. Um, and this is something that I've done with my film, my, my proof of concept, which ended up getting picked up by Scott Free. But I have a movie, 12 Kilometers. And, and in, as an independent filmmaker, what you're told is that when you're done, you put it on YouTube. And I go, yeah, but. That's like, that's like me building a house and throwing it in the fucking ocean. You know, it's like when, when you're done, you put it on YouTube. And I went, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. If you want to watch my movie, you have to write to me and ask me to watch my movie. And you have to present to me your favorite movies and tell me your favorite three horror movies. And if I agree with you, I'll send you my movie. <laughs> and I've been doing this yearly now. And the experience has been so wonderful because the audience that is watching it is excited to see it because they know yeah. that they can't see this fucking thing. And then they're immersed and they're connected to it. And the viewing experience is more interesting. And more importantly than anything else, you can challenge an audience in that mindset. So you don't have to do all this stuff that the studios tell you where like it, the cold open has to fucking catch them. And this has to do this and that has to, you don't have to do that if the people that want to watch it genuinely want to fucking watch it. And that then you can really experiment in that space. I don't know how I got yeah. off on that tangent, but uh, yeah. I, you know, you're absolutely right though. You are absolutely right. I, and I kind of want that back for the big films. And I think that that's what existed when you went to watch a trailer and you'd see an opening of a movie and go, fuck, they made a new Die Hard? Like this, I remember yeah. seeing the trailer for Die Hard 3 and I go, holy shit. John McClane's running around outside. <laughs> but it would be that thing, wasn't it? That's why they're called blockbusters. People queued around the blocks to watch them. People be on the queue. What are you going to see? I've no idea, but the queue's five blocks long. It's got to be brilliant. You know, that was, you'd have no idea what you were going to see. I, I would literally go into films and watch them. I did this with Species. Obviously, I slightly regretted it, but I, you know, I just liked the poster. I was like, that looks cool. I'm going to go and see it. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like, that looks like Geiger. Is this an alien? It does. It's like, it's like alien, but with this woman in it. It's going to be great. It wasn't great, but you know, I'm glad I saw it. 
Ah, uh, man, dude, dude, I'm enjoying talking to you. This has been really great. And and we're we're pushing at our limit as far as the episode length is concerned. How are you on time? Are you doing all right? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. Um, well, before we leave, I wanted to talk to you a bit because I know you're a huge fan of it. I'm a big fan of Die Hard. I loved your fucking article that you wrote. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, my sweeping history of Die Hard. <laughs> yeah. um, so before you dis- before we get into it, uh, I think I read somewhere. Did you get to go and talk to all the film? Did you talk to McTiernan before you write, wrote this article? Yeah, actually, I did, and that oh. that was kind of exciting because McTiernan, as I'm sure you know, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is not really around. So, yeah. um, he's hard to pin down. Oh, wow, how did this? Um, what what is this? To explain this. What happened? Well, actually, I can't take credit for for McTiernan. So so Nick, who's uh, who's now the editor of Empire Magazine, Nick Sermon is a very good friend of mine. But uh, he'd been in touch w- with John McTiernan. He's spoken to him you know, <laughs> since he's been out of jail. Um, and, you know, look, I love McTinnan. I, I love Flight Predators. It's one of my all-time favorite movies as well. Like, I, you know, I adore the man. And, and I was like, okay, okay, you know, this, this, is, all, <laughs> this is all good. I'll, I'll drop Nick a line and Nick will be able to hook me up. Because someone said, you know, look, we're thinking of doing a thing, you know, is there anything new we could do on Die Hard? I, was, I can't remember exactly how it came about. I'm sure it was something along the lines of, I would like to speak to everyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so they were like, okay, well, let, let's let's boil it right down. Like, who do you actually need to talk to? And the thing is, you can't, I feel like you can't really do Die Hard without McTiernan. Like, you need him there. Like, he you need he is voice. Die Hard. Yeah, he, he is, is Die Hard. Exactly that. Like, sure, sure, Jeb Stewart's great. Like, he, you know, originated the, the, the screenplay. And then Steve D'Souza put all the stuff that you quote in the screenplay. Uh, you want to talk to those guys as well, but you want McTiernan. And, uh, and so Nick dropped McTiernan, Team McTiernan, which I think is actually... McTinnan's wife uh, dropped her line and and said, you know, would you be able to do it? And we didn't expect him to do it. And he was like, yeah, sure, go for it. And I got like I think an hour on the phone with him, and we just I just geeked out about Die Hard. Oh my! Which oh my god! Okay, is one of the greatest pleasures in life. So. All right. So what did you hear from him that I don't know? Oh my god! <laughs> like weirdly, actually, funnily enough, like for him, it was more. The mechanics are, I remember mean, I mean, just him talking through the things about, you know, like the helicopter thing, which they kind of weren't entirely supposed to do, that they didn't maybe entirely have the rights to, <laughs> to do in the way they did, you know, and, uh, and the sort of the risks attached to that. Like he was quite, I think, frank about, you know, the challenges they faced and the difficulties also dealing with, with, with you know, shall we say Bruce? Yes. Um, yeah, yes. Who was like, you know, there were moments where, and I don't think I'm the first to have mentioned this, where like he wouldn't stand in a certain place because he didn't want the light, you know, illustrating the fact that his hair was thinning. Of course. Uh, but he didn't want to say that was the reason why he wouldn't stand there. So it just seemed like he was being difficult. Of course. Um, <laughs> you know, which is which is kind of nuts. But actually what really interested me was talking to um was talking to to the two writers who had a different idea, like Jeb Stewart's idea of adapting, you know, the original novel, which is nothing like the film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, because uh, originally they were supposed to make that movie with Frank Sinatra. Yeah, what, completely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because well, they, I think they had to offer him because it's it's a sequel. Like the book is a sequel to a previous story, and Sinatra had played the role in that story. Right. Uh, so I think right, they contractually right. had to offer it to him. I don't think they ever thought he would take it. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, it, it, and and it's a it's a very 
it's a very different thing to the book, a very different thing. And just just the way they kind of put it together, the way they 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 like Jeff Stewart was like he couldn't work out his in, like he couldn't work out what to make it. And I love the idea that because he, he nearly has a car crash on the motorway, he's just had a big fight with his wife. He nearly has a car crash on the motorway, and obviously you know when that happens, you know that happens like you're in the car, you nearly hit something, and like you get that like oh you break out in a sweat and your heart's <laughs> pounding, and you're like oh my god I nearly died there. Yeah, yeah. And of yeah. course his thought was like oh my God, I need to call my wife immediately and apologize, regardless of whether I was right or wrong. And he was like, and his second thought was, that's what this film is about. It's a guy who's got into an argument with his wife and then terrorists turn up. Like yeah, that's, okay. that's the heart of the movie. And that was, that was kind of his way in. And I think that's the human core of the film. And then obviously you need the Steve D'Souza stuff, which is all the great lines and the wisecracking <laughs> and all the fun stuff. And Steve was brilliant. And I must admit, I geeked out massively on the phone with him. And he, he gave me some of the original, God, I wish I had them to hand actually, he, some of the original uh, uh, test audience reaction sheets. Oh, really? Uh, that they had when people came out, just what people had written about it and how it had scored. Uh, which was fascinating. And the floor plan for the Nakatomi Plaza, which is obviously was the Fox building. Um, <laughs> and just where they shot everything and how they did it all. And I was just like, this is amazing. This is one of my all-time favorite films. Um, <laughs> but this, that's, I mean, genuinely, like that's the joy of doing of, of doing this job. Like the joy, there's a reason I've been doing it for 21 years. Like it's, it's things like this. Like it's when you, when something you love so much and you've grown up with and you've just watched so much and means so much to you on an emotional level to be able to then in some small way kind of touch it to brush against it to speak to the people who made it like i had this i did a big thing on, on schwarzenegger when he came back to the last stand mm -hmm. and he, i like i worshipped him when i was a teenager i love all his films like quoted commando predator all that stuff endlessly i mean who didn't <laughs> yeah um and I got to spend like a day with him. I got to like, he let me hold the Conan sword and stuff. He like, he walked me around to show me all his bodybuilding trophies, <laughs> his office in Santa Monica. Like, he's got loads of props. He's got like the Harrier from True Lies above his pool table, the alligator from a razor under the pool table. What? And I was just like, oh my God, like this is the most amazing thing. And I remember distinctly, like I came out of that interview that I'd done with, I wrote this 9,000 word piece afterwards, but I came out of that. And the first thing I did was I called this guy who I'd not seen since I was maybe 14 years old. We hadn't kept in touch <laughs> at all. I called him to say, dude, you will not believe how I spent my day. <laughs> because it was him and me. Like he was the reason partly that I, I got into films in a big way in my teenage years because we, the two of us used to go, he lived around the corner from me. We used to rent videos from, from it actually was pre-blockbuster. It was called Ritz Video uh -huh. uh, in the UK. And we used to rent all these videos out and and there was like a, I think it was on Thursday nights you could get three new films for three nights for three pounds. So yeah. we used to absolutely exploit that every single week, and we used to watch all these Arnie films together. And I was like, if anything can bring people together, it is the experience of Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> so yeah, when I finally got to to hang out with him, I was like, this is my ultimate fanboy moment. I must now call everyone I've ever met. So, well, I, you're incredibly fortunate. You get to live and work in such a fanboy environment and you get to work for a magazine that still is in like print publication that yeah. has to do with, Old with movies. Yeah. Which is, which is amazing that that still exists. Um, it's really cool, man. It's been a really fucking great conversation. <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad it. you too. Yeah, man. I appreciate you being on the show. And then, uh, I'll make sure to put links in the description for the episode for these articles that we've been talking about and also the podcast. Like, yes. You, how often Please, you, everyone subscribe to the Pilot TV podcast. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Fuck yeah. Well, thanks for being on the show, James. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you.
it is. Episode in the can. That was a good one, right? Um, I, I love getting nerdy about movies. I love getting nerdy with a nerd about movies. And fuck me. James has had access since a fucking, since he was five years old. He's had access to some of the best movies on the planet. Uh, and talk about, you know, going to a source that loves to be a nerd, right? Loves to, he loves movies. He loves TV. Um, and I really enjoyed talking with him. And hopefully in the future, I'll get him back on the show. We'll revisit that conversation. Um, but what did you guys think? You guys enjoying it? I, have you been leaving reviews? A lot of you have been leaving reviews. And speaking of which, excuse me as I have the worst indigestion this morning. Let's, I promised that I would read some of our reviews on the show. So let's go here and uh, hit it. Oh, good. Oh, great. We got a bunch of new ones today. You guys are doing it, man. For those of you who haven't done so yet already, head on over to In Love With The Process podcast on Apple Podcasts. That is the only place that you can leave a review for the show, other than in the Instagram stuff. But leave a review there because the algorithms across the board sort of take note of what is going on on Apple Podcasts. And I know many of you listen to this show on Overcast. Many of you listen to the show on Spotify. That's great. I'm not telling you to listen to the show on Apple Podcasts. If you have an iPhone, if you have a computer, sign in. Um, and it's super simple to do. Just go to and level the process on there. You can, Oftentimes you have to look up my last name. Just go there, scroll down past the first, I think it's like 15 episodes, and you'll see a section called rating and reviews. You can write a review and you can tap to rate the show. Let's do this right now. Let's see. We've got a bunch of really great, okay, a bunch of really great reviews. Okay, so here we are. An awesome and informative listen. <laughs> I love the names that people pick for themselves. From Fuzzy Meow. Okay, Fuzzy Meow. Uh, Mike Petchy has an excellent way of explaining the film industry from an insider's perspective that is easy to digest for anyone who lives on the outer rim. All right. Uh, this podcast has a lot to bring to the table. There is so much to absorb in just one podcast. After a few episodes, I feel like I could give a lecture on film theory. Excellent. 10 out of 10. Well, thank you so much, Fuzzy Meow, for leaving such a great review. Are you envious that I'm not reading your review yet? Put it up here. Uh, let's see. What else we got? <laughs> oh, man. That cuts off the title of this. It says, educational, brutally honest, but he dot, dot, dot. Okay. <laughs> the name of the person that posted this is Sriracha Cum. That's really nice of you. Uh, I love this episode. I am a new listener to the In Love of the Process podcast. In the first episode, I was drawn to... Uh, and in the first episode, I was drawn to one of the longest one. What does this say? Hold on a second here. Let me read this again. And the first episode I was drawn to, one of the longest ones, and I loved it because it was very honest with a climb to your own definition of making it, okay, on this in this business. And the key is you can't be half-assing it, but you need to find a balance and finding fun in the struggles, which is actually the stepping stones to the top. Thank you so much, Mike. Well, dude, 
that's advice that uh, I try to give out. That's advice that oftentimes when I'm saying it into the microphone, it goes back into my, my headphones. I'm often saying it to myself. It is incredibly difficult to stay positive and motivated sometimes in this business because um, it is a fucking, it's like an abusive relationship. It can be. Um, and sometimes it gets really difficult. I had a really rough week last week with it. Um, and uh, thankfully, I have people around me that uh, I can escape the craziness with. And I have Gina that really offers support, but um, it, it really beats the shit out of you. Um, and so we, we've said it on the show multiple times. You need to do other things in this, besides this business. If you're working in this business, you have to have good hobbies. You have to have uh, ways to make yourself happy on a daily basis because it can suck. Um, podcast that filmmakers need to listen to uh, by Wicked GT720. I just got listening. I just got done listening to episode 153 with Chris Candy, and it was a great interview. Hey, man, I've seen the numbers on this stuff. You guys really liked that show. I was talking to Chris about it the other day. He's super pumped. Uh, you definitely felt the emotions that Chris had for every story he told about his father, John Candy. Yeah, um, I, he has so many great stories. I wish I got more out of him. Uh, the way Mike set the tone for the entire podcast was amazing, giving us the backstory of him and Chris and letting Chris speak uh, just about his acting career at first. Uh, it felt like two bros just having a conversation while giving us filmmakers insight into how the industry operates and what to look for. Definitely a nice balance between giving information out and your everyday conversation with your friend. Uh, great info for filmmakers and actors. Man, you guys are fucking killing it with these uh, reviews. By the way, did I mention that uh, the only way that you can watch 12KM right now is uh, if you write reviews for the show? So if you write a review on Apple Podcasts, and you send me a note and say, hey, Mike, I just wrote a review. I will reward that hard work uh, by sending you a link to see 12KM. Um, keeping the dream alive. Uh, for Christian. I'm a filmmaker living in Phoenix, Arizona, and I have been listening to this podcast for quite some time now. It's one of a very few podcasts that I listen to while working on film. Uh, I just like that Mike doesn't hold back. He tells us how it is, not to mention the star-studded guest he gets on his show also share with us the priceless stories of filmmaking. Well, Christian, uh, stay with it, buddy. If you're in the business, if you're working hard, I know it can be tough. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for giving me a fucking outlet, giving me a creative outlet and a reason to be doing this. Reason to be up this early competing with a fucking power washer on the house next door. Anyway, uh, Home Biscuit. Writes great entertainment. This podcast does a great job of capturing my interest on a wide variety of topics that Mike covers on an episode by episode basis. Not only do I gain a greater understanding and appreciation of all facets of the quote unquote process, but the one off episodes about unique professions or music also opens my eyes to the greater world we live in. Oh. Fun stuff, highly entertaining, and definitely something I would recommend to anyone looking for a refreshing take on all sorts of topics. Fuck yes. Excellent. I'm happy that we took a big risk on this show. Uh, because what you're supposed to do is just find a niche and then just dig into that niche. So if you listen to other filmmaker podcasts, there's usually an angle that they just continue to exploit. It's easier to market. It's easier to get out there. 
It's easier to get more listeners, but I find that to be a fucking boring dredge of a thing to do. I would hate that if my show was always like, here's how you have to be a director, or here's how you unpack and use your gear, or cinematography 101. I'm going to teach you everything about it. And I get it. Uh, I listen to a lot of those shows. I love a lot of those shows. They're very specific. But the thing I love about like like Mark Maron's podcast, the thing I love about a good conversational podcast is that there are days where I don't want to know shit about filmmaking. I don't want to know how to direct something. I don't want to know that. Um, but what I want to know is human life stories. I want to know interactions. I want to know the things that inform my work right? I want to know that it's okay that I feel like shit today. All that stuff is uh, what I've tried to design this podcast around. It has, make it, it has made it harder for it to get bigger faster, um, but it looks like in the long run it's working out. Okay, last, last one for today. Real talk for creatives. Uh, this is from Heights Trash. I'm not a, I am not a, here we go, let me start that again. I am not a videographer, nor do I have anything to do with the film industry, but I totally dig this podcast. I like hearing people who are passionate about their craft, and Mike is definitely passionate about his craft. Uh, thank you. Uh, quality interviews, not always with filmmakers either. Slice of life talk, uh, a peek behind the scenes, and in and around inspiring attitude, which keeps me coming back. Well, fuck yes. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for leaving reviews. And to, like I said, everybody that leaves a review, um, I can send you a link to 12KM. I've been doing that a lot. I've been trying to post. People have been doing new reviews for 12KM, which I'm super excited about. Um, as I've said on the show, it is a, a movie, a proof of concept uh, that was then picked up by Ridley Scott and Scott Free. So it is something that is being developed in the slow development process. Um, but... The only way you're going to see that proof of concept, because I sure as shit, I'm not going to put it out there for free, is by um, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts for this podcast and then dropping me a DM on Instagram bragging about the fact that you left me a review. Um, and I will send you a link. There it is. Today's episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, more episodes on the way. I'm going to try to get some more filmmakers on, talk about some more horror stuff and the future stuff as we get into Halloween. Um, and, uh, that'll do it. So anyway, I'll see you guys next Tuesday. Mm -hmm.